Hello and welcome to episode 1962 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. There is a new way to say that someone is in the best shape of his life. Oh. As we near spring training, important to point this out. The new way to say it was said seemingly twice on Saturday within a span of 20 minutes, which is just weird. But at 3.08 p.m. Eastern, Saturday, January 28th, Twins beat writers, including Dan Hayes and Betsy Helfand, tweeted this quote. I'll read Betsy's tweet. Jose Miranda showed up to Twins Fest after changing his diet and an offseason of hard training. Carlos Correa, quote, he looks sexy. Have you seen that body? Okay, that's 3.08 Eastern. (laughs) The timestamp is important because at uh, 3.26 Eastern, same day, Peter Pratt, who covers the Marlins, he tweeted, Jazz Chisholm was asked about Abisail Garcia, who appears to have worked tirelessly this offseason, quote, he looks sexy. Have you seen that body? (laughs) Verbatim, exactly the same quote. He looks sexy. Have you seen that body? Carlos Correa on Jose Miranda. Jazz Chisholm on Abisiel Garcia. What is going on here? Yeah. Was there a memo sent out that this is how we're saying this now? (laughs) (laughs) I just, um, I really like it, Ben. You know, I like it because it can, you know, like it can encompass all manner of tastes, right? It can cover a a wide variety, a wide variety. What? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Wide array of uh, aesthetics, you know, different kinds. Yeah. We know that uh, athleticism can sometimes be deceiving, right? Like guys can be sneaky athletic. Mm -hmm. They can be, and that's, they're in the best shape of their life. Even if we are prone to finding their shape wanting, we shouldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it's uh, really good. So I like it. Although, yeah, the the commonality there is... (laughs) Kind of surprising, although, you know, maybe it's like, um, you know, when you listen to a podcast and then you start talking like the host a little bit in real life and someone's like, you've been listening to that pod too much, you know, maybe it's like that. Yeah, no, I wondered. I don't think that they have the same agent or something. You know, Correa is a Boris guy. I was wondering yeah. maybe Boris started calling people sexy, but it, it just it, that wouldn't it shock me. You know, rubbed off so to speak on his clients. But I believe that Jess was not a Boris guy, so it just seems like a strange right. coincidence. Unless uh, they were chatting and and just happened to discuss who's looking sexy and whose bodies they've seen. But yeah, I applaud it. I think it's nice to have a different way to refer to this because at some point it became a cliche that you were in the best ship of your life and then people started becoming self-conscious about saying it or they would say it sort of tongue-in-cheek, like laughing at themselves for saying it, knowing that these stories are written annually. I once did a study back at Grantland years ago about whether this had any effect, any predictive power when yeah. someone showed up in the best shape of his life. And it seemed like on a rate basis, no, but there was a, at least some slight indication that maybe playing time wise yes Mm. I think there was at least a little bit more playing time I I forget I will link to the study but it is a a fun way to describe it although yeah we should add the caveat that obviously sexiness is uh, subjective right? and this is just Jazz Chisholm and and Carlos Correa's evaluations (laughs) of their teammates and also I suppose that sexiness a, a conventional kind of sexiness might not correlate to athletic performance 
performance, right? I mean, if if we're talking about some sort of uh, aesthetic look here that may or may not actually put you in the best position to succeed over a long season as a baseball player, you know, sometimes uh, baseball players, they start the season with a little extra padding and then they get whittled down over the course of the season because it's hard to keep the weight on. Yeah, you're playing every day and it's hot out there and you're sweating. So if this is like, you know, they, they cut too much and they're looking sexy, they're like you photo shoot calendar ready here and the season hasn't started yet, then I guess that could potentially backfire. But the same thing happens with Best Shape of His Life where sometimes players will come in in the best shape of their life consecutive springs. Right. And sometimes there's a response where they come in in the best shape of their life, but like in a certain way so that they were either, let's say they were focusing on on lifting and adding weight and strength and muscle, and then maybe they don't have such a great year. And then the next year they come in having focused on flexibility and yoga and core work or whatever, and they've actually slimmed down a little and now they're in the best shape of their life, but it's a different shape. So I guess that's sort of subjective too. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's hard. We have the industry sort of thrives on the idea of profiles and like, you know, useful heuristics to kind of categorize guys and have us be able to, using quick shorthand, sort of understand what a guy might do, right? And that's because there's so many guys, Ben. Mm -hmm. There's just like so many, you know, before we even remember any, there's so many, you know, before we have to remember some of them, like there's just a lot of them. And so we need these like shorthands, but I think that it is useful for us to remember that like the, the process of athleticism is going to really have a lot of variation person to person. And, you know, you might be in a really good particular kind of shape and that might not be suited to the purpose, like, you know, when we think about, oh, am I setting myself up for people thinking I'm saying that Julio Rodriguez is sexy if I say <laughs> what I'm about to say? Mm, one ponders. But, like, think about, you know, the the version of Julio that we saw prior to his big league debut se- season. There was a lot of very justifiable concern about him being able to really play center the mm-hmm. way he needed to prior to big league camp that year because he had gotten bigger to yeah. be strong right and then he came into camp and he had he had leaned out more mm-hmm. and he was it's not like he was in bad shape when he was bulkier and, you know it's like we need better words cuz like bulkier <laughs> has like this value judgment and that's not what i mean <laughs> at all but like he you know he had he looked like a, a linebacker. He still mm-hmm. kind of does look like a linebacker, but like a really sleek one, right? And right. so he came into big league camp that year having slimmed. And it's not like we would say he had been in bad shape before. He was in a different kind of shape that was suited to the purpose that allowed him to play center because the leaner body let the speed play, right? So it's it's a weird, it's a weird thing to try to say generalizably about guys and whatever their best shape may be. And you know, this seems true of sexiness, because to your point, it's subjective, but I also like it because it just feels like it's a nice bit of like appreciation amongst yeah, right. amongst players. I guess it's sexy in a way yeah. that feels, you know, like um uh, like uh, you, you'd say it almost because it's like, well, this is undeniable. Look at him, it's so sexy. <laughs> yeah, I like it, Ben. 
I, I like, like it. it too. Yeah. So tired, best shape of his life, wired. He looks sexy. Have you seen that body? So Have you seen that body? We're about two weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting, and we'll see who else looks sexy once right. people start seeing people's bodies, and we'll see right. whether they phrase it exactly the same way. In yeah. which case, I will wonder whether there's some sort of pod people scenario happening right. here. But I mean, like, it might <laughs> depend. I mean, like, when the catchers come, you got those thighs, Ben. You know, mm-hmm. we got them thighs. And, mm-hmm. and then it's like part of this may depend on whether Cole Hamels ends up getting a job, you know, because <laughs> yeah, then mm, yeah. all bets are off, you know. Supposedly he looked great at his tryout. I don't know if he looked sexy, but his his pitches, ben, his stuff did. Reportedly. I uh, I feel confident to say he is, he always looks that way. You know, yeah. I've never... I've never heard more straight men describe another man as sexy than I have hearing baseball writers talk about how hot Cole Hamels is. Like, you know, it's just yeah. like, it's undeniable. It's it's just an objective fact about the man. I feel yeah. so weird saying this. I hope you and your family are very happy, Cole. <laughs> we'll have to have not, I'm not, to, I'm to not talk longing, about. <laughs> right? This isn't a, this yeah. is just a statement of fact uh, that I'm attributing to yeah. some of my coworkers. If the Cole Hamels comes back successful, we'll have to have Bauman on to talk about. Yeah, the, the just to name a guy yeah. who we might have both been thinking of. I kept him anonymous. You named him. He wouldn't be embarrassed. So I think it's fine. Uh, go yep. birds. Anyway, leave it to us to find the, the actual baseball angles, uh, the analysis that, that we could interpret and overthink players calling other players sexy. So Not, just wanted I, to. <laughs> I, I don't think we're overthinking it. I think we're enjoying it. You know, we're, I agree. we're, mm-hmm. we're reveling in it. Uh, yeah. It's not overthinking. It's, it's yeah. enjoying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of quotes that were not quite as sexy. Oh. So uh, <laughs> are we at peak owners stepping in it? <laughs> these days, it are seems we going like... to talk about Dick Monfort? Of course we are. Of course we are. <laughs> <laughs> Has there been an, op- an owner who's opened their mouth in the past few months without stepping in it, without just putting... <sighs> their foot in there or something else because it seems like we've been talking an awful lot about that genre of quote and here we had dick monfort who's a a prolific purveyor of uh not great quotes and in fairness to him i think this is not his worst work necessarily but (laughs) he was uh quoted as saying well so many things but he was at a northern colorado friends of baseball breakfast now, what is it with these breakfasts and luncheons? Why do they go to these breakfasts anymore? <laughs> they really should not. I mean, I, in a sense, I'm glad they do, that they do open their mouths and say these things so that we have something to talk about. But but it seems like every time someone speaks to a rotary club or a breakfast or a luncheon, like uh, these things are public, you know, and yeah. whether they know it or not. So <laughs> he's talking to, again, a friendly, supportive crowd, one would assume here. And he says, we have a lot of talent. A lot of good things are going to happen, and I think they are going to start happening this year, and I think we can play 500 ball. (laughs) So the first few parts of that sentence are like, oh boy, get excited for the Rockies. Uh, Exciting things are going to happen. And then the end is, I think we can play 500 ball. (sighs) Now, he is infamous for saying prior to the 2020 season that the Rockies would win 94 games that year. And to be fair, I guess that was never completely disproven in the uh, non-pandemic scenario, right? Because the Rockies, uh, if they had played 100 more games 
and they had gone 68 and 34 in those games, a nice uh, six, 67 winning percentage, then uh-huh. indeed they could have won 94 games. But right. as it was, it was a 60-game season, so they could not, and also right. they wouldn't have regardless. Yeah, <laughs> but, it seems unlikely that they would have done that. Yes, uh, in the 60-game season, they went 26 and 34. Anyway, you know, since I, I'm extending plaudits to him for not being so irrationally exuberant as to say that they might win 94 because now he's adjusting expectations down to 500 which is still probably irrationally exuberant yeah I don't really see how the Rockies could win. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you can have a a strange season where everything goes right and no one gets hurt and you outplay your run differential and everything. And and you can kind of maybe luck into a a 500 season more so than you can a 94 win season. So it's possible. But they're coming off a 68 win season and they just haven't really done much to upgrade. I mean, I'm looking at their roster resource offseason Yeah, isn't Jose Urania their their third starter? Yeah, I mean it's it's Urena. slim pickings. They just they really didn't do a whole lot no. signing wise, trade wise, etc. So I don't know where he thinks the wins are coming from. I do but love to extend those relievers though. Yeah, oh yeah. But this <laughs> is a, a running theme with the Rockies thinking that they're better than they are. So in a way, again, I'm applauding him for just being more realistic. Not realistic, but but right. more so closer right. to realistic, I guess. And you know, he's talking about some prospects who are maybe kind of close and are coming along. I think we have a competitive team and I think we are learning some things that we need to learn to do differently. I would hope so. I think this is really a year where we can really step it up a little bit. This is a year when people need to take a step forward and some of the new kids need to come in and show excitement, et cetera, et cetera. Keep the faith here. I think we're on the right track. I'm more confident now than I was last year. Last year, he also, he says, thought a 500 record was in the cards after the Chris Bryant signing. (laughs) I think with 500 in the cards and if stuff goes right and with the expanded playoffs, who knows what happens? That's sort of what we thought. And then as it ended up, Chris didn't play much and we ended up a little worse than I thought. <laughs> so a little wow. worse. Yeah, also, 68 wins. But that, Don't put all of this on poor Chris Bryant. Yeah, right. It's not all Chris Bryant's fault. Good gravy. No, there were some other issues there. But Just a really, if, if that's uh, your plan, your upside going into the season is who knows what happens. You know, if something goes right, expanded playoffs, uh, who knows? But that's not where he stopped, right? Right, I was uh, going to say, if he had just said, hey, we're going to play 500 ball, we feel optimistic, we have great prospects, that's not true, but like, you know, people would have been like, oh, dick. Right. But that's not where it... That's no, not it is. where it ended. No. And he also had vote of confidences uh, or votes of confidence <laughs> for everyone, basically, which is kind of the Rockies' way. Bill Schmidt, general manager, I think Bill has been a really steady hand. He lets uh, manager Bud Black and the coaches do their jobs from an organization standpoint. He's done a great job. And then on Bud Black, I like Buddy. I like him a lot. He's done a lot of great things for us. I think it's sort of up to Buddy and how long he wants to do this. It seems like, I mean, great job security in the Rockies organization, if you want to stay around uh, you can that's fine and everyone's doing a great job even though it sounds like they need to make some changes and learn things but also everyone who's there doing a fantastic job and basically can just decide how long they want to stay but he talked about the Padres so he complained about the Padres I think we could say in reference to the Padres spending that puts a lot of pressure on us 
But it's not just the Padres. It's the Mets. It's the Phillies. This has been an interesting year. What the Padres are doing, I don't 100% agree with, though I know that our feds probably agree with it. <laughs> we'll see how it works out. <laughs> I look at the Padres, and they have a really talented team, but they have some holes too. They've got three, maybe four starting pitchers, and then they're sort of like us. They have Musgrave, Snell, and Darvish, so I don't know. They've spent a lot of money, and they will have to spend a lot more if they want to keep Juan Soto. But it does put a lot of pressure on you. Yes, it does. (laughs) So here's the thing about all of that. How silly. Like, what a silly. So, okay, look. (laughs) First of all, to say, like, they have three guys, we got three guys. Aren't we the same other yeah. than that? Like and I don't mean to disrespect like there there are some good players on the Rockies. So sure. I don't want to say that like everyone is a real mess, but I think a couple of things. First, like I, her, her mom Marquez is like legitimately good. And then you have like Kyle Freeland and you know you have Urania, which I talked about, and like Austin Gomber. And then you look at the you look at the Padres, and they have you Darvish. They have Joe Musgrove. We are like not enjoyers of Blake Snell from an aesthetic perspective, but they have Blake Snell. They yep. have like a resurgent Nick Martinez. They have mm-hmm. Seth Lugo. And then you look at their position players, and it's like, you know, it, it's perhaps telling that he um he started by talking about the rotation, right? Because it's like, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, exactly the same except for them having Juan Soto and Manny Machado and Xander Bogarts and Jake Cronenworth and oh yeah they signed Nelson Cruz how many roster spots are the Padres allowed I think it's more than (laughs) 26 you know it's like this is not a these are not comparable franchises now I'm sure that Padres fans would agree that they wish they had like a bit more reinforcement wise in the rotation but the thing about them is that like they'll probably figure it out they still have more depth than Colorado does they don't play baseball on the moon and they're gonna score a bunch of runs plus they have a good bullpen so like what are you talking about dick (laughs) yeah and just seeming miffed that uh, the Padres are putting pressure on them to spend as well as other teams there it's not like the Padres are in such a dramatically different situation from the Rockies when it comes to like I mean I guess the Rockies they have to compete with other higher level local sports teams but aside from that media market wise ballpark wise you know, it's not incomparable. So really to be like, they had to go and, and put pressure on us. You know, we used to just like, we used to all just be sort of slacking and, and you look at the Dodgers and well, you can't compete with the Dodgers. But now suddenly we've got the Mets and we've got the Padres and all these teams just being spoil sports, just making us look bad, making our fans think, wouldn't it be nice to spend some money? Right. <laughs> so Well, and it's a strange, it's a strange bit of business too, because They have not been hesitant to spend money. They just haven't spent it well, you know? Like, Colorado isn't spending, clearly isn't spending the way that San Diego is. There's, you know, little little less than $100 million of gap between the Padres and the Rockies in terms of their luxury tax payroll. But, like, Colorado's in the middle of the pack when it comes to their payroll. It's not like they're the A's. They're not spending that cheaply. I don't know that they need to keep extending relievers at the rate that they do, right? Or bringing in a guy to play left field whose real value is at third base if he can stay there. But like the spending is only part of Colorado's problem, right? And I think that the the fundamental issue 
with the Rockies is that they they have never seemed to be able to properly diagnose just how competitive they are. The contracts that they give out when they spend money don't seem to be ones that are really designed to bolster the club, despite what Monfort says, like, their farm system isn't good. So it isn't as if they have assembled an otherwise competitive ball club and are like, wow, sure would be nice if we could spend money the way that our peers within the NL West and within the NL more broadly have, but we just can't do it. Otherwise we would win. It's like, no, your problems go much deeper than that. Like you're, you're not a, you're a weird org. <laughs> you're a weird, strange weird. organization, and you're not going to be competitive in that division for a while. Like, you know, Colorado has to deal with the Diamondbacks. The Diamondbacks are a problem for them, and it's not like the Diamondbacks are outspending them. You know, their payroll is like $50 million less a year than, than theirs is. They're able to be as competitive as they are and to probably play a little bit up relative to where people expect them to because they did you know develop internal talent they do have those young outfielders and they don't play on the moon but they play at a higher elevation than most of the rest of the league so i don't know man just like get your house in order before you start worrying about other people like do your job <laughs> I can't well, believe that we had a lockout with this guy on the committee. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I wonder also how the the Bally's issues are going to affect the kind of quotes that we see coming out of yeah. owners, because owners already they will seize any opportunity to pretend not to be making money and, sure. and that owning franchises is terrible business, etc. Despite the fact that they all want to be in that business and the franchise values appreciate more so than than anything else on the other investment you can make but there was some news recently that the Bally Sports Network or i suppose technically the Diamond Sports Group which owns the Bally Sports Network is uh, heading for bankruptcy that they're not going to be able to make their payments because there was a, a leveraged buyout and there was a lot of debt that went right. toward making that purchase. This is like Sinclair is uh, is the Sinclair Broadcast Group is like controlling all of this, right? And so these are subsidiaries of that. And they have a lot of MLB and NHL and NBA and WNBA local broadcasts and right. regional sports networks. And so they purchased this uh, network of, of RSNs from Fox in 2019, the Fox Sports Network, and it was not a great time to make that acquisition. And I guess the way in which they did it left them pretty vulnerable, what with the debt and everything and right. the ongoing cord cutting that is happening and interest rates and who knows what else. Ben Clemens, who understands finance, <laughs> is a, a certified knower about business, has uh, covered this at Fangraphs and explained it in far more depth <laughs> than I can. But basically, no one knows exactly what's going to happen here because it's uh, 14 teams, right? 14 teams' local broadcasts are affected, plus two more that their minority stakes. I think the, the Cubs' marquee network and the Yankees' yes network. Yeah. So there are any number of outcomes that could come from this. So it could be that there are actual payments missed and there's a revenue decrease, which is not certain to happen, but could happen. And there are some 
positive, happy outcomes that could come from this too, potentially from a fan perspective in that MLB is looking into ways in which maybe we could have local broadcasts that are not blacked out and, and that can be streamed on MLB TV. And they recently hired an executive, Billy Chambers, who's a a longtime RSN person and is now going to be the executive vice president of local media at MLB and will be maybe working on making these broadcasts available to fans. So it's possible that there will just be a a paradigm shift here. And if the cable bubble is bursting or already has burst to some degree, then MLB will try to coordinate and acquire those rights and we will have a happy utopian future where we'll all just be able to stream things online even if it's in market so remains to be seen what the outcome of this will be but in the short term i do wonder whether this will give owners more material to work with you know if uh, they're claiming that they can't spend or that it's uh, tough times for everyone they could potentially point to this and say oh payments are being missed and a big part of our revenue is this local broadcast revenue and now we will be bereft without it Right. I mean, I think that you're right to assume that ownership will take opportunities to say they can't spend even when they can. I think that a good thing to keep in mind, and Ben makes this point in the piece that you referenced, is that like the debt was the issue here. It's it's definitely less lucrative to own a regional sports network now than it was, you know, in 2019 or 18 or 17 because of some of the forces you've described, particularly cord cutting, but. What caused this problem was the degree to which they had to take on debt in order to secure this sale, not that the, you know, the underlying sports networks themselves were suddenly unprofitable. They had been quite, they were perfectly fine as a business for Fox prior to them Mm -hmm. having to sell off because of the Disney stuff and regulatory this and that. So. I think you're right that like there are potential good outcomes here. This will surely be cited as as a reason that some team somewhere decides that they can't spend money. It's not entirely clear like what the resolution of this will be, and it doesn't mean that there isn't a, a regional sports network bubble that might burst at some point, but I think that, you know, when you see this headline you assume like, "Oh, it, it has burst now." And it's like, "Well, mm-hmm. maybe it will, but this this isn't really the thing that is going right. to necessarily point to that. So I yeah. encourage people to read that piece. But you're, like I said, you're absolutely right. Like ownership will point to anything to say, oh, well, we can't spend more money. And this mm-hmm. will probably be one of the things that they point to because, you know, so much of, well, a meaningful amount of their payroll might be tied into broadcast stuff. So. Yes. The Rockies are not one of the teams, though. (laughs) They are uh, not. The the Diamondbacks, the Braves, the Reds, the Guardians, the Tigers, the Royals, the Angels, the Marlins, the Brewers, the Twins, the Cardinals, the Padres, the Rays, and the Rangers. And then, to some extent, the Cubs and the Yankees, as I mentioned. Well, and it's, you know, I think that it is useful for us all to remember when we, you know, as we proceed through this bankruptcy and start to see the fallout and what a restructuring might mean and what that's going to mean for payments and whatnot, that, like, while this is getting reported now, I doubt strongly that like that teams were unfamiliar with the circumstances surrounding Bally and Sinclair and mm-hmm. Diamond Sports Group. And like it didn't stop the Padres from spending money this offseason. It didn't stop the Rangers from spending money this offseason, mm-hmm. right? Like it didn't stop the twins eventually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so you know, and some of these teams didn't, but the Rays weren't gonna, right? The Brewers weren't really gonna. That's not super surprising given those, you know, so blah, blah, blah. 
Yep. All right. Well, thanks to Dick Monfort for supplying us with material as usual. I was, I was going to say it's like the grift that never stops giving, but it's not grift in their case. I, I think he legitimately does believe that they might win 94, or they might go 500 or whatever it is. That's part of the problem is that he does believe it. He's not just trying to sell you a bill of goods. He believes the bill. He sold it to himself. Right. Yeah. I think that we have long we have long thought that for something to really change in Colorado, it's probably going to require a different owner. You know. Yep. So. All right. So Zach Greinke resigned with the Royals. Yeah. And we have a, a plan to do a Greinke specific segment on an yeah. upcoming episode, hopefully, so uh, we can table talk about Greinke until then. But happy to see him back with the Royals and just uh, pitching in general. Yep. So that's nice. And today's uh, baseball exceptionalism updates, ways Mm. in which baseball is different. So first of all, listener Lee pointed out that these baseball exceptionalism segments are really answering the question, if baseball were the same, how different would it be? Oh, Usually we're talking about if baseball were different, how different would it be? But in this case, we're talking about if it were the same, if it were what it is now, how different would it be from other sports? And Justin mentions the observation about saves last episode. We mentioned that it's unusual that just the institution of the statistic of saves had a meaningful difference on how games were played and how pitchers were used. The observation about saves made me remember something else statistically different about baseball that I'm pretty sure is completely unique to the sport. Baseball, so far as I can tell, is the only sport that has adjusted certain stats based on what should have happened Mm. from pretty much the beginning. In most sports, if the defenders are somehow inept or incompetent, the attacking player still gets credit for the scoring event. In baseball, we claw back hits due to defensive miscues, differentiate between earned and unearned runs, reward RBI when one out is recorded on the play but not two, and count a sack fly as an at-bat but not a sack bunt. More modern metrics attempt to answer expected or deserved stats, but in a way, this drive for justice on the back of the baseball card has been in place for over 100 years due to the strange ways in which personal statistics don't always mesh with on-the-field team results. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, a, it's a good it's, one. It's a very good point, and like the, the degree to which it is clearly elucidated in moral terms in the rule book is like really fascinating like they mm-hmm. when writing the rules around like sacrifices and stuff like they're written in terms of like reward and valor and you mm-hmm. know the uh, valor i don't think is in there specifically but like they are clearly trying to delineate between stuff that is viewed as like good and enhancing the team and stuff that isn't and it is uh i'm not i haven't read um other sports rule books in the same way mm-hmm. because I do try to do fun things occasionally but mm-hmm. it is striking when you engage with the the MLB rule book like how clearly they are interested in in articulating the intention behind the rule as rewarding certain kinds of on-field play and not rewarding others and I think that that is a very that kind of fussiness feels very baseball to me. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To clarify, a, a sack fly is not an at-bat currently. It is a plate appearance, not an at-bat. Right. It, those rules and designations have changed over time, though. Yes. 
And another one is from Harris, who says, one thing I've always thought is unique to baseball is how often a key member of the team is unavailable because they need to rest. Mm. Even in the most high stakes games, several starting pitchers are simply unavailable because they pitched in the last few days. I can't think of another sport that has such a dramatic change in team composition game to game. As a sort of extension to this, and it's more of a stretch, baseball is also the only sport that I can think of that requires teams to use their team dramatically differently during the regular season versus the playoffs. Mm. During the regular season, you need five or six starters, but during the playoffs, you only need three or four, and the top two guys carry significantly larger percentage of the innings in the playoffs than they do in the regular season. That's actually always kind of bothered me, and I wish MLB had a regular season schedule that was closer to what college baseball is, with primarily a weekend series and maybe one midweek game a week. I think it would be more fun. If the regular season were played more like the playoffs, additionally, if teams were able to use just their top pitchers more, then there would be a larger talent gap between teams, which would keep the standings from being too random with fewer games. So, yeah, that depends on the postseason schedule, but that is certainly the case sometimes. A couple of things I would say about that. I guess this is kind of connected. At least the first part is kind of connected to the fact that there are just so many games, right? right, Which we've talked about as another differentiating factor. So you have uh, players who need rest in other sports sometimes too, but because there are so many games in baseball and because starting a game as a pitcher is strenuous in a way that other activities are not, then they need to be rested at times. And I guess this kind of goes hand in hand with... The batting order dictating who gets the chance at a particular high Mm. leverage moment, right? I mean, there's even less flexibility when it comes to the offensive side of things. Right. If it's the big moment and you don't have a great pinch hitter on the bench and he just doesn't happen to be up at that time. And you're just out of luck. Right. And and people always say, you know, in, in football, like the quarterback has the ball and can right. pass to the best wide receiver or whatever. And in basketball, you could give the ball to your best scorer. Like you have a choice of who gets the opportunity to try to score. And in baseball, you do not to a great yeah. extent. You just have to live with uh, what the batting order dictates. So there is less flexibility, I suppose, in who's available and who you can actually give the ball or the bat to at the moment when you want your best player on the mound or in the batter's box. Right. Like if you, you know, if you're sitting there as um, the baseball equivalent of the Kansas City Chiefs and Travis Kelsey isn't up, well, he's just not up, right? And then I don't know, the Bengals are going to the Super Bowl. I watched a lot of football this weekend, Ben. I could tell. Yeah. That sounds like a reference to recent football game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I picked that up from context. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because they were all hurt. And then, you know, that's the thing. I do mm-hmm. wonder how the availability thing will change and continue to change, I should say, in other sports, even with shorter schedules than than baseball has, but but still long ones, right? Like I, mm-hmm. I um, would not consider myself an expert uh, in the NBA, but I am given to understand that some people are real worked up about load management, right? Mm-hmm. And then yep. those guys just go full blow come come playoff time right because the nba postseason lasts for like 10 years but so yeah. there is i think there is some of it in other sports but certainly not to the degree or with as much rigidity as we get with starters um and right. even you know even relievers are being load managed to some extent right oh yeah 
much more than they used to be. And you wouldn't load manage someone in a must-win game, though, in the NBA, whereas in baseball, I mean, yeah, we have seen occasionally a a starter will come back on one day's rest or no day's rest, right, to like pitch and relief in a really important game. But often they're just out of commission, even if it's an elimination game. And in the NBA, you rest people all season long because even though the season is shorter in in terms of the number of games than MLBs, it it still is longer than it needs to be. It's kind of overdetermined because you learn more about basketball teams in a basketball game than you do about baseball teams in a baseball game. So you rest guys then so that you can have them available in every must-win game, really important playoff game. Whereas in baseball, yeah, some players are just off limits no matter what you do. All right, we have a few emails to answer here, and I've got a couple stat blasts and the past blast as always. So first email, so Josh, a Patreon supporter, emailed about this, but this was just everyone on the baseball internet was buzzing about this on Sunday There was a big uh, to-do about the fact that at the BBWAA awards dinner, where players' awards were handed out, the Cy Young Award winners, Justin Verlander and Sandy Alcantara, were photographed holding what appeared to be Cy Young Awards, where the word valuable was misspelled. And also, they said most valuable pitcher instead of what the Cy Young Awards have said of late, which is the outstanding American or National League pitcher. So everyone dunked on this because valuable was spelled without the A after the U. It was just V-A-L-U-B-L-E. And the MLB account tweeted about this and one of the John Boy accounts uh, tweeted about this. And so everyone was piling on, right, and making fun of the BBWAA for misspelling valuable. (laughs) And Josh was also concerned that they had changed the wording from outstanding pitcher to most valuable pitcher because we have enough parsing of valuable as it is, right, with the MVP. And it's been kind of nice that the Cy Young is not exactly most valuable. It's outstanding. And so we don't have the same debates about whether you have to be with a winning team. Well, I can set the record straight here. This has already gone viral and been aggregated, and it's too late to close the barn door. But I emailed Brian Hoke, who is the Yankees beat writer for MLB.com, and he's also the New York BBWA chapter chair, and he was emceeing this event. And he had tweeted something. Of course, the tweets about the spelling error and how these awards were handed out and there was a mistake on the awards got a zillion retweets. And Brian's tweet kind of clarifying the situation got like almost none. But (laughs) it's funny how that happens. But he said that these were not the real awards, just to clarify with everyone. This was not a mistake with the actual awards that Alcantara and Verlander will receive in a few weeks. There was a manufacturing delay, and so these were placeholder awards, and they were on loan from MLB Network. Mm. Yeah, and also the actual awards, when they are awarded the real awards— They will still say outstanding pitcher. They will not say most valuable. There has not been a change in the wording. These were placeholders that were throwbacks to the original 1956 award, Don Newcomb's award. Uh In 56, there was only one Cy Young for both leagues, and and Don Newcomb won. He also won the MVP, but he won the Cy Young. And at the time, the wording was originally most valuable, and then it was changed to outstanding 
I think some decades later, and I don't think the two leagues changed at the same time because I I found it it seems like the NL changed its wording before the AL. And so there were AL awards much later than the NL that still said most valuable. Anyway, this was the original wording, but it is not going back to that. Okay, so we are sticking with outstanding. It's not switching to most valuable. And also, this was not the BBWAA's fault, as I understand it. It was uh, not an issue of of not enough copy editing. It's not the the Copy Editing Association of America. But even so, it was not the BBWAA's fault. This was on loan from Emily Network. And what I don't know, some people speculated that maybe because this is a, a fake replica, that the spelling mistake was intentional to differentiate it from the oh, real original I, I was going to say, yeah, but like we haven't, it's not like an old timey word. I think we've spelled valuable the same way for yeah. the last 70 right. years or whatever. <laughs> Brian doesn't know whether the spelling mistake was intentional or not, but it was not the PPWA screw up if it was someone screw up. And also these are not the real awards. So <laughs> just yeah. uh, everyone calm down. Now, obviously taking those pictures and putting them out on social media, I think they should have known that there would be some blowback and people saying, hey, you spelled valuable wrong. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know why they didn't anticipate that. And it's not an unfair reaction for people to have when they see these things. But just want to set everyone's minds at rest here. The mistake was not the BBWAs, and more importantly, they are not the actual awards, and they are not changing the wording of the award back to most valuable. So, false alarm, everyone. Well, I'm glad we cleared that up. Me too. (laughs) No one will hear this uh, clarification, though, and everyone will persist in thinking for all time that they just spelled valuable wrong. And somewhere in the trophy room in Sandy Alcantara, Justin Verlander's houses, there's an award that says valuable and it's spelled wrong, but not the case as far as I know. All right. We got a couple pedantic questions here. So Andrew in Pennsylvania How can you not be pedantic about baseball? Last episode's mention of unlimited timeouts being unique to baseball got me thinking, why are they even called timeouts at all? Mm. Until recently, there's been no clock and therefore no time. Wouldn't a better term be ball out or game pause or team meeting time? <laughs> Has I think it the, always... <laughs> the possible alternatives have answered your question for you. <laughs> yeah, there may be a better alternative. I don't know that that's one of them. <laughs> Has it always been referred to as time or timeout in baseball, or is this after the influence of other timed sports like mm. football and basketball gaining popularity in the States? Thinking about other pre-1900 team sports, I'm mostly thinking about soccer, where there are still no timeouts, so I have to imagine they weren't in earlier versions of soccer either. It would strike me incredibly odd for calling timeout to be a term baseball coined despite the lack of time. And if this is all true, then how did 1880s parents send their kids away to think about what they've done? As a parent, I find this almost as perplexing as time in baseball. So I emailed original Pass Blast consultant Richard Hirschberger to see if he had any insight into the origins and the etymology of timeout. He said, this is a good question. I have wondered why time was adopted and don't have a good answer. Mm. I do know that it happened early. And he quotes uh, from Porter's Spirit of the Times, December 26th, 1857. Time can be called whenever it is necessary to change a player or if the umpire desires to ask a question. 
And Richard continues, the early date would usually hint at a cricket origin, but this seems not to be the case here. Mm. Cricket does not use the expression. A batsman who doesn't take his position in a timely manner can be timed out by the umpire, but that is something different. This 1857 citation looks like this usage was generally understood, but I have no explanation for it. So something of a mystery. Let us know if you know the origins of timeout. I wonder, though, if the the use of the word timely Mm-hmm. is is a clue here, Ben, right? Because you're right that we haven't had a clock in any meaningful way, but you can still like uh, look at a batter, for instance, goofing around with his gloves or, you know, a pitcher rubbing up the ball and, and say that he did not either stand in or deliver the ball in a timely manner. Yes. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's maybe that's where it came from. I don't know. Right. It's possible to imagine it. Uh, you, you can understand from context what it right. means. I mean, even though there's no actual clock, like time is passing. Well, and <laughs> right? you're, you're taking time, right? You're, yeah, right. You're, yeah. you're taking time. You're saying, I need time yeah. to do other stuff that isn't hitting exactly. the ball or, or delivering a pitch. So I, I think it's probably tied up in that would be my guess. But mm-hmm. yeah, it is a little bit funky, isn't it? It is a little odd. Of course, uh, there have been time limits in baseball prior to the clock being sure. instituted, right? I mean, we're we're making those time limits. We're formalizing them, essentially, right. by having a pitch clock. We already had time limits. They just weren't observed, really. Right. But that wasn't the case in 1857, I don't right. think so. <laughs> anyway, good question. Good question. Stump the pass blaster. And the other pedantic question is from Milner, Patreon supporter, who says, pedantic issue, we should retire the term offensive environment Mm. when what we really mean is scoring environment, which depends on a number of factors, both offensive and defensive. Changes in scoring environment sometimes have little to do with the offense and can include equipment and field changes. While I know that offense can be used as a synonym for run scored, I think in this case, scoring environment or even run environment is more accurate. I'm going to disagree. Oh, okay. And here's why. All right. I think that while, yes, one of one of the things, maybe even the most important thing that we are talking about when we are talking about the offensive environment is like how many runs are scored. We mean a lot of things, right, when we talk about the offensive environment. And some of them have a lot to do with sort of the shape and distribution of the offense separate from the scoring itself, right? Mm, mm -hmm. And so I think offensive environment, which I do not take to mean things that are solely within the control of position players when they're at the plate, Mm -hmm. is inclusive of all of that stuff, right? So when I think Mm. of us talking about the offensive environment, we might also, we might be talking about, you know, are we in an era of th- of three-tier outcomes? Are we in a high base running era? Are mm-hmm. we in an era where we're hitting a bunch of home runs relative mm-hmm. to other kinds of hits? So I think offensive environment is a better term because it is more expansive and that is a good thing because we don't just mean the runs. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess Milner would argue that even if you're talking about run scoring and offensive profiles and three true outcomes and all of that, that some of that is dictated by things that are not 
the offense, right? Uh, well, so sure. Th- the ball, for instance, or how pitchers are being used. Yeah. And so if you were to say run environment or scoring environment, then that would encompass all of that without giving the credit or the blame solely to the offense. I I think in most cases where I say offensive environment, and I do sometimes say that, I probably could substitute scoring environment and run environment and, and they would work well too. But I think you're right that there may be times where you really are focusing on something about the offense specifically, and then maybe you would want to use offensive environment. So I, I think probably there's a, a little bit of distinction among those terms. They are often interchangeable, but I think maybe we don't have to uh, eliminate offensive environment entirely, that there are some contexts where it might be the best term. Yeah, I just don't I just don't read it as necessarily being solely confined to the offense. Perhaps right. my view is more expansive, right? It's the environment in which the offense operates. And of course there's yeah. gonna be other stuff within that environment than just the offense. Otherwise you'd just be playing by yourself. Yep. <laughs> right. You know, that's not baseball, that's just uh hanging out. Yeah. So maybe it's implied that we're not just talking about the yeah. offense, we're talking about the context in which the offense is operating. Yeah. So- but but if you prefer for run scoring environment, like okay, that's yeah. fine. Oh, run scoring. So yeah, you you just combine scoring environment and run environment into run scoring environment. So maybe well, that's... maybe maybe my <laughs> preference then is run scoring environment because I do think mm-hmm. you want to leave room within the the conversation about the offensive environment for stuff that <laughs> is a little bit more meta than right. simply mm-hmm. the runs scoring. You know, just those runs. Who cares about those? <laughs> All right. Question from Ryan. Your mention of foul poles in comparison to goalposts in football and the difficulty of actually hitting them got me thinking about a hypothetical. Suppose MLB made hitting either foul pole with a batted ball worth more runs due to the difficulty of hitting a ball exactly there. Let's say just for speculative purposes that hitting a foul pole is now worth eight runs. Whoa. (laughs) Would players put in extra practice and effort toward devising exactly the right angles they would need to strike the ball at in order to hit the poles? Would some hitters become known as foul pole specialists? And would teams pay a premium for anyone able to develop this very specific skill set? Please feel free to speculate on the number of runs that would be necessary for (laughs) such a feat to be worth it in order to make specializing in it worthwhile if eight seems insufficient to you. I mean, I think eight would do it. You know, (laughs) I don't know how probable this is, but I'd love to see it. It would be so fun. Yeah. It seems very unlikely to me that you'd be able to to really like launch it that precisely. Yeah. I think even among hitters who um, at this moment are like really strongly polar oppo, they're not. I mean, how many... How many foul pole hits happen in a season? I would like to know that. I mean, I, I know, know that, look, they're not trying right now, right? Right. <laughs> if anything, I would imagine hitters, if they had their druthers, would like to be a couple feet in from the foul pole if they're aiming, right? Because if if you are aiming for the foul pole and you miss, then you have a foul ball and that doesn't do you mm-hmm. any good, right? So I think that we don't we don't quite know what the, the baseline, like, true talent level is (laughs) (laughs) for this but let's see because you have you have three you have three potential outcomes right like let's say you are a hitter you have you have developed this skill you have three outcomes Mm -hmm. one of your outcomes is that it's just a foul ball Mm -hmm. and that's a strike 
but it's on and out. So it's like, okay. And then you have the eight run option. Oh, eight runs. It's a lot of runs. And then the other option is that you just hit a home run, mm-hmm. right? If it's uh, if it's sufficiently elevated, you just hit a home run, yep. and that's not a bad option either, right? Or you're you're aiming over there, and you like you know you, it goes off the top of the wall or whatever. Um, I don't think that a team would would look at a guy and feel like they have enough confidence that he is demonstrating like a real skill, yeah, for this to inform any signings. <laughs> At all, like it, if it were worth a hundred runs, but then yeah. like you're not playing baseball at that point, right? So <laughs> I don't think that obviously this would never happen, but like I think the incentives for it to happen in like the parallel universe where we entertain these things are pretty low, because mm-hmm. I think it would be very difficult to demonstrate that you doing this, even if you did it a fair amount, is is really down to skill and not just variance right so i think that would be hard but i am intrigued by some of the math right because you know again assuming that you are elevating such that a foul ball like gets into the stands or a ball hit over into the corner that isn't hitting the the foul pole and isn't foul is just a home run like oh some of that math is is interesting, but I don't know how you show someone like, oh yeah, this is like really a skill I can do. You know, this right. is a, a replicable <laughs> thing yeah. that I have in my arsenal. But it sure would be fun. <laughs> yeah, if every team had just a, a designated foul pole swinger, and you know, if you're getting blown out, you bring out the foul pole swinger right. to, try, to try to even it up. Except if you have a, a foul pole specialist. And everyone knows that he's trying to hit the foul pole. And so, yeah, well, you could walk him or you could probably pitch him pretty effectively because if he's just, I mean, you're sitting dead red and and you're just. You you know where he's trying to yank it. Yeah, right. Like he he has no option to go, well, unless it's an opposite field foul pole specialist. (laughs) Use use all fields, pole to pole, right? Right. You could have some foul pole specialists who uh, could actually go the other way. It's like if you can do that, if you're a hitter that can do that. Yeah. Don't you just hit really well anyway, yeah. and you're just like a guy in the lineup? Probably, right? yes. Yeah, because if you knew that someone could could do it with some greater than average regularity but could only do it to the pull field, well, then you just uh, pitch him away, right? right? And right. probably he's he's cooked. Stymied. So. He's just like, oh, I have my one skill. Right. So it would be it would make you pretty easy to pitch to, I think, yeah. if everyone knew you were doing it and if you could only do it to one field. But yeah, inevitably, it would be a pretty low probability play. But we say that now with uh, hitters not having trained for this their whole lives. So if the incentive were there and you just uh, you took swing after swing after swing and it was like when you get in the cage, like instead of, you know, laying down your bunts and then trying to hit line drives or up the middle or whatever, you just try to rip one and hit the foul pole. <laughs> like, I don't know, maybe. And then again, like if everyone's trying to hit the foul pole, then pitchers would respond to that and pitch everyone differently and then that would be difficult so yeah if you know what the hitter is trying to do and it's something that specific then i think that makes them more vulnerable and also it would be just tough i assume that there is a a specific diameter that the foul pole is allowed to be and that people aren't like cheating by having a slightly thicker foul pole than other foul poles. I don't know how how rigorously the measurements are done there, but you might have some teams. Well, you got the little grate 
too. Yeah, right? there's the netting often. Yeah. So I don't know whether teams would try to have fat foul pulse <laughs> to try to, you'd have to really pulse. measure that. I'd love to see the data on how often the foul pole is, is currently hit, like what yeah. percentage of home runs. I guess uh, StatCast, I don't know whether StatCast could tell us that. Maybe, maybe Probably. it could. I have not seen the data on that, but you'd think that we could figure that out these days. So that might be instructive. Yeah, I think yeah, it would it would definitely we they should develop that technology to answer this very specific question <laughs> that doesn't really have any real game value. But like I think it is illuminating of one of the central goals of rulemaking in baseball, which is that you never wanna tilt the scale too heavily in favor of one side or the other, right? So you you never wanna introduce like the nuclear scoring option into baseball because if you do that then the game gets all out of whack you know Mm -hmm. things get cattywampus right if you are gonna come back from an eight-run deficit like we insist that you earn that and we give you a mechanism to do it with efficiency in the home run you don't have to then juice that further Mm -hmm. right because you know you can already in theory score four whole runs in one go if the Mm -hmm. opportunity presents itself and that feels like a sufficient like clawback to relevance option but yeah it sure would be fun like who would would, uh who would we enjoy seeing see doing this the most it would be the most fun with the tiniest guy (laughs) you know you want the tiniest guy hitting the eight run shot like that's what you want the tiny guy Mm -hmm. yeah tiny All right. Another outfield-related hypothetical. This is from John in Deadwood, South Dakota, who says, Regarding pits, whenever professional bull riding comes to my town of residence, Mm. Deadwood, South Dakota, there are advertisements to get tickets for the Shark Tank, which is a dugout pit in the middle of the arena that is caged in for fans Uh, to be at the center of the action. Nope. Well, I'm not sure about player pits. I think this could be an interesting player obstacle where instead of box seats, you could purchase cage seats randomly dug into the outfield that players could climb for a height advantage to catch a ball or an obstacle in play. Absolutely not. So I I watched uh, a couple videos of of these shark tanks in the bull riding arena. shark tank when it's well, a bull riding thing <laughs> yeah it's it's like you see in shark week i mean when they lower the tank and they have the camera people in there and the sharks like bash their head against the yeah. cage and rattle the cage it, it looks like that except you're sitting in it and you're not submerged in water and it's bulls instead of sharks but same I'm sort of idea enough damage to those poor bulls really yeah well that's the thing i i guess Right. It's not so dangerous to you, the spectator, in the cage, assuming that the the tank is uh, well-constructed. Sometimes those shark tanks, they will come apart. But I assume it is, I guess, a little added dangerous to the bull and the rider, but it's already so dangerous that maybe it's just like, eh, what's a a tank in the middle of the thing, right? Or maybe the bull will avoid the tank more often than not. I don't know. It would be tough if you had this in an outfield because, well, usually I guess the the bull can see what's in front of them, right? Whereas the outfielder cannot always. If they're going back on a ball, then they cannot see the tank. Now, of course, 
they could learn where it is if it's in their home park. But then if they're a visiting player, they have to familiarize themselves with where that tank was. It would be like in old Yankee Stadium when they used to have Monument Park in play or there would be like a flagpole out there on Towles Hill or whatever. Or, you know, that random pole. Right. And, And those things would be like in deep, deep center where they were rarely a factor. Right. But these would be, I guess, spread around the outfield or would be closer to in play. Now, these would be, I think, very in-demand seats. I mean, if there were like a a tunnel that went under the field and then you just pop up and you could sit or stand and basically you're you're looking at things from i don't know like a outfielder knee or or waist high vantage point right and and you're looking in as if you were standing in the outfield yourself like it, it would be kind of hard to see through the cage i guess and then you know you you wouldn't have the same perspective that you have if you're sitting somewhere with more elevation but you'd feel like you were in the action you were on the field cuz you would be basically so it, it might be fun to uh, be in the cage as a fan, but I got to think that the the danger, the outfielder safety issue. Now, yeah, you could use the cage to your benefit. I mean, you could jump on it and snare a fly ball potentially, and, and that would be a great highlight reel catch. But I think much more likely is <laughs> that you would run smack into it yeah. and you'd end up breaking or spraining or, or concussing yourself. Yeah, I think there's no way that players would ever want this. And a lot of ballparks <laughs> kind of split the difference between, you know, shark week like peril uh, <laughs> and having to sit in a in a seat as an aside, like. I think people, they shouldn't want to be in the camera shot so much, you know? Mm. Like, I would find this very stressful. You're, like, in the camera shot the whole time. Yeah. They couldn't really see you, though, probably, because given the angle and the cage. Then, like, why would this be a good viewing experience? Wouldn't you rather just have an outfield seat and be able to visualize the whole field? Probably. Probably. Right. But here's <laughs> but the other thing. The novelty value of there it. There are it? ballparks that have, you know, like, seats out there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are ones that have them right behind home. Like a lot of them have them right behind home, like at field level. Mm -hmm. Like I, um, I think those seats are probably pretty expensive. But like, I wouldn't want to sit in the seats right behind Chase. I'd be on TV the whole time, and I've, I've made, I've made a lot of words out of people making faces. There's no way my face doesn't get screenshotted and shared on Twitter for a whole game. (laughs) There's no way. Sounds terrible. (laughs) But yeah, it would be even if you padded it, it would be would feel dangerous. I mean, I'm I'm all for funk. In the mm-hmm. outfield. Like, I think we yeah. we could be a little looser with how we think about ballpark construction, but this seems like an obvious safety hazard in a way. That, <laughs> and I don't think that those seats, you know, I don't think your view would be good enough to, like, feel like it was worth it because you know they'd be wildly expensive. Yeah. And, like, what if you have snacks and the, the cage gets rattled and you spill beer and then there's beer in the outfield, you know? Like, <laughs> right. or what if, what if you get some jerk in those seats and they are on the field effectively heckling an outfielder mm. and oh yeah and like throwing stuff at them and they'd have a way better angle on it i think it's a disaster waiting to happen oh yeah you know i'd never do the shark <laughs> thing either that seems scary it does seem scary it but- seems like i would you know i know that they're fine most of the time but i am convinced that they would break when i was in there and then people would be like yeah that great white it got <laughs> It got Meg or like a, a Mako shark. Those are the fast ones, right? Yeah. It's like in Deep Blue Sea. Some of the shark movies are called Meg, so it would be appropriate. But yes. The Meg. Right. Yeah, I am merely a Meg. <laughs> I am not the Meg, you know? Yeah. 
Right. <sighs> I think uh, we've entertained some hype. I vaguely remember some early effectively what hypothetical about like outfield seats uh, where the outfielders would have to go under the seats. It would be like a raised platform of sorts. And then the outfielders would have to go chasing under the fans who were, who were sitting above them. So there could be like kind of like, I don't know, maybe one of those concert setups sometimes mm. where you're like sitting in the middle of the band or something or like, See, you know, seems... it's yeah, like the, the platforms are, are extending in all sides and you can have a seat in the middle of the stage sort of or you can be like right where the, the performers are striding out and soloing and hamming it up. So something yeah. like that maybe would, would no, be a little less dangerous I don't, potentially. I don't think I need that. I don't think I need that either. You know, I um, I don't feel... The need to be that a part of the action, I think, mm -hmm. is is part of it for me. You know, I like to observe and have a low stress, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. experience where right. it's like if they're running around underneath you, you're like, I can't see that. You yeah. Know? Well, some people will pay a lot for, for danger. They uh, are thrill seekers, you know, and so they want to have yeah. that experience of being in danger without perhaps actually being in danger. I'm not one of those people. Mm -mm. I'm anxious mm. enough. I don't need that in my life. Yeah. In episode 265, we answered a question where someone suggested that there should be a little house in center field and <laughs> there should be uh, the outfielder has to go to the house and knock on the door and there should be an elderly person who inhabits the house out there and they have to ask the occupant politely for the ball back as in the sandlot. It's sort of a, a sandlot rules sort of hut. So we've had all sorts of suggestions, but I don't know that we've had the cage before this. And, you know, it's kind of creative if the savannah bananas or someone want an idea seems like they're selling plenty of tickets as it is but someday i would not be shocked if we saw the cage come to baseball or the shark tank all right question from andrew I was listening to some old episodes of the pod from 2019 and made special note of a couple of comments made about the Twins and the Guardians, particularly in episode 1381. Within, Sam proposed a rhetorical question noting Cleveland's performance to date and the 2019 three true outcomes environment to ask if more strikeouts and fewer balls in play are not fun, is Cleveland the least fun team in baseball? This struck me in relation to the 2022 Guardians, who carried the opposite reputation, at least on the batting side. Alternatively, Ben and Sam described the Twins' sudden shift toward progressive management and fun play, noting the hiring of Wes Johnson and Rocco Baldelli and the team's shift to strikeout pitchers and home run hitters. This is all to ask, what do MLB teams do that most definitively or rapidly changes their vibe in terms of fan perception? Are there factors other than performance since obviously get good and get worse would be pretty powerful here, which teams have the steadiest reputations and vice versa. So what can a team do to change its vibe, to change its reputation when it comes to fan perception? And I was thinking, because you noted earlier that the Rockies just might be Rockies-like as long as Dick Montfort owns the yeah. team. I think an ownership change has maybe the most potential to rapidly change the vibe of the team or the way that the team operates because the owner, the buck stops there, right? And so the owner will often hire a new front office and then the new front office will hire a new coaching staff and then they will do things to change the way the team plays. So I think there's only so much you can do with the same ownership. Now, then again, I guess if the Guardians are an example of a team that changed to a different vibe or a more fun vibe, well, 
they've had unfun owners throughout, right? And it's the composition of the major league roster that has changed and the style of play and all of that. So they've done that despite having ownership continuity. So it's not necessarily prerequisite that you change owners to change the vibe of the team at all, but that is something you can do quickly. Like, you know, Steve Cohen buys the Mets and suddenly it's not the Wilpon Mets, it's the Steve Cohen Mets. Like, that's a pretty big overnight difference, right? Or you talk about the Padres and Peter Seidler and all of that, like that can kind of change things on a dime. So that's, I think, maybe the the quickest way, which is not to say, I mean, it's not a guarantee you get a new owner and things change. Sometimes it's meet the new boss, same as the old boss, but (laughs) it can be a rapid shift. Yeah, it definitely can be. And I think, you know, if for some reason, (laughs) for some reason, if somehow like the Rockies emerged with like a vibrant and really great front office and a bunch of players who were good, like there have been good Rockies teams in recent memory. And some of those teams were like super fun. And some of them were pitching driven, which was weird. And we liked that, right? They had a good vibe, despite the fact that ownership was still a mess. Like ownership has been a mess as long as ownership has been there, right? So I don't think that having a bad owner is necessarily a barrier to to good feeling about a team or a, a fun yeah. team that's enjoyable to watch. Like there have been fun Guardians teams, despite the fact that their ownership refuses to really invest in payroll. But I think that you need to have like a couple of the things working at once, right? Like we want to see a team that is fun and good, or we want to see a team that is promising and has a baseball operations and and sort of scouting apparatus that might push it forward. Or we want a team that maybe is like on the downswing, but we have confidence that the ops group and ownership are like investing and figuring out how to drive it forward, right? Like we, you need a couple of the things. And ownership, like I... I don't want to focus too much on the ownership piece because I'm skeptical of most ownership ever being like really good. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's like you can have bad owners and be a fun team, but you need the other stuff. Like you Mm -hmm. need to have a fun team. And I think most of it is just are you good or not? (laughs) That goes a long way toward whether you're fun or not. It's possible to be a more fun bad team than other bad teams but it's uh, i think the baseline funness for a good team is going to be higher than for any bad team probably even if it's a a fun bad team with a bunch of characters it's still probably more fun to watch a boring good team in most cases i would imagine but yeah i think a manager might have something to do with sure, this you yeah. know i mean a manager may or may not have a huge impact on the actual on-field performance but i think can have a pretty big impact on the vibe and whether players feel comfortable yeah. and what kind of quotes uh, you get to the media and do they do fun ice breaking team building type of stuff or not or is it just kind of all bland and corporate and by the book so i think manager can play a part in that and then I don't know I mean it's it's tough to entirely remake your roster in a short span of time but that will happen at times or if you're just like a, an older team that 
becomes a younger team. I think that's a a big thing that can happen fairly quickly. Like look at the Orioles last year, let's say, and they also became a better team. So again, like you can be very young and bad, or you can be very young and, and good. It's actually more common to be very young and bad. It was unusual that the Guardians were so good despite being so young. But if you are coming off years of non-contention and you start sprinkling in some promising prospects, even if you're not yet good and contending, the vibe is uh, much different because you can start to see the contending core forming right. and you get to just see some new guys instead of the old guys who are going yeah. nowhere. You know that these new guys might go somewhere at some point. So I think that's a, a big way that it can happen in a span of a season or two. Yeah, I think that that's right. And this might sometimes go together with an ownership change, but one of those big statement signings by a team that traditionally hasn't spent big or hasn't contended or hasn't been able to lure big free agents and then splurges on someone, the Nationals signing Jason Wirth or the Padres signing Manny Machado. It's like a shot across the bow of the rest of the league, like, hey, we're here. We can go get the big dogs too. And whether that deal works out or not, maybe it gives you some credibility. It's kind of a corner-turning marker where you show, hey, we can splash around in the deep part of the pool too. And because the question asked about the teams with the steadiest reputations, I think it's got to be the Cardinals, right? For better or worse, mostly for better for Cardinals fans, I would say. I mean, ownership's been the same since the mid-90s. John Mozeliak has been in that organization since the mid-90s. They signed Yadier Molina in 2000. Sometimes it seems like from afar, the Cardinals just have been sort of the same team for 20 plus years now. They're always kind of in contention, but usually not the best team in baseball. They often have some once unsung homegrown guys. Even now, they have no Arnado, they have Paul Goldschmidt, they have some superstars, but they still seem Cardinalsy. There's some stable essence there. So we'll see if that's the case post Molina and eventually post Wainwright, because another way that a team's vibe can shift is when a team leader who is very closely associated with that franchise departs or retires. It's like losing the soul of the team. The Mookie Betts trade, that was a big vibe shift. All right, question from Michael Patreon supporter. Your discussion of era adjusting the pitch speed in Rookie of the Year got me thinking about how top pitching speeds change over time. That is, can we presume that one day a 110-mile-per-hour pitch will be thrown in MLB? Can we project from historical data about when that will occur? And I don't think we can with any great degree of accuracy. For one thing, there's a lot of dispute about how hard the hardest throwers used to throw yeah, because the measurement methods weren't consistent with today's and maybe weren't as accurate as today's. So we have some data for recent decades. And again, there was also the change with radar guns and where they were actually measuring the pitch. Was it right out of the hand or was it somewhere halfway between the mound and home plate? But we do have data, certainly good data since uh, pitch FX in 2008 for every team or 2002 with the BIS tracking or Even earlier in some cases uh, when I wrote about the Reds scouting reports and we looked at their velocity readings going back to the 80s or early 90s, I mean, you can tell that the average velocity has increased substantially over those decades, but... We don't know for sure that there's been a steady increase over a longer time frame that you can necessarily extrapolate back in time all the way. 
And also, I think the important thing is that it's not really clear that the outliers speed increases at the same rate as the league average. Right. Like you'd think that there'd be a little bit of rising tide lifting all boats and that if the average is uh, 92 instead of 88, then the hardest thrower might also be a harder thrower in the latter era than the earlier. But not necessarily because... The fastest pitch on record still is Aroldis Chapman's 105.8, and whether that was completely accurate or not, he had a number of other pitches that were clocked at very close to that, but that was 12 years ago. So that was, uh, what, 2010, I think he, he threw that pitch? So it's not as if there's been a steady uptick at the top of the scale, and in those years, the league average velocity has increased, but we haven't seen someone come along and raise the bar at the top end. So there are some people who've said that they don't think throwing 110 is anatomically possible, that it just can't happen. I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't rule it out, but I think it might take some sort of physical freak or, you know, someone with sort of a, a non-standard physique and yeah. anatomy that enabled them to do that and endure the stresses that that would require. So I would not uh, bet against some real-life Sid Finch coming along and, and being able to do it, but I don't know that we can project and say, well, Nolan Ryan threw this hard and Rollis Chapman threw that hard, and therefore we can conclude that in the year 2030, whatever, there will be someone who can throw that hard. It, it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah, I think that I think that that's right. All right. Michael, a different Michael, says, I was listening to yesterday's episode while watching the Australian Open, and it got me thinking about the point that baseball is played on two different surfaces. Obviously, in baseball, there is either grass or turf plus the dirt infield. But what if baseball was like tennis, where there were three distinct playing surfaces, grass, clay, hard court, and mm. players who were better on certain surfaces than others? Obviously, tennis courts do not have multiple surfaces on the same court, but it would be interesting if, say, some outfields were entirely dirt instead of grass and certain center fielders made more plays when playing on the dirt than on grass. Of course, the change in court surface in tennis is sort of seasonal. So if baseball followed suit and played on entirely dirt fields in June and then had entirely grass fields, infield included in July, I wonder how or if that would impact the way front offices build their team and if there would be meaningful differences in defense between surfaces. I'd bet that some players would be more comfortable on particular surfaces for whatever reason, but I don't know how much it would matter in the long run. Yeah, That would be quite entertaining if uh, there were tennis courts that were like grass on <laughs> one side and dirt on the other, and it would give advantages to certain players in certain games and sets and not others. I don't know if that exists anywhere in the world, but that would be fun. But a baseball equivalent of that, where we don't really have that now. We have distinct playing surfaces on every field, really, but more or less... The same amount of uh, different playing surfaces. I mean, you know, some will have strips of dirt here, there that others do not, that kind of thing. But for the most part, you don't have like all dirt fields or all grass fields or fields that uh, have sort of predetermined patterns of uh, different surfaces that would benefit certain players other than, I suppose, turf, right? Turf right. would be one way. And Bauman just uh, wrote about that. Yes. Right? Yeah. Bauman wrote about whether the teams that have turf fields, replica turf fields, or I guess the Blue Jays turf, which is the closest to old school turf 
even though it's it's more modernized and meant to be more lifelike, but isn't fully lifelike. And he found that some teams seem to have more success, right? When they put the ball on the ground, like the, the Rays, for instance, if you're a team that plays on turf, some sort of turf, then maybe there are teams that have uh, kind of cracked that code somehow yeah. and, and figured out how to use that to their advantage. And there are stories about players back when turf was more common and it would benefit them, right? Because uh, they could just smack the ball up the middle or whatever, and it would bounce fast and it would get past the infielders or certain infielders would use the turf to bounce their throws over there. So maybe that's the closest equivalent that at least used to exist or sort of still exists. Yeah. I feel like that's that's certainly the closest. It would be really funny if it was like we had a baseball equivalent to the like the clay hardcourt thing with pitchers. Like, oh, he, he pitches well off a right. natural mound, but once you put him on <laughs> yeah. turf, it's a disaster. Like, yeah. I don't know what the that would be kind of cool. It I would be like cool. Yeah. It would be a f- it would be an interesting wrinkle. I yeah yeah. I guess to some extent you have that with different dimensions and, you know, certain uh, outfield fence constructions are are more conducive to certain guys hitting for power. Like there are certain players who are able to use the park to their advantage more than most. Like that's something that people say about Todd Helton, that you can't necessarily do the typical home road sort of splits with him or park adjustments with him. For one thing, it seems like Rockies players are disadvantaged on the road because of the altitude change. But for another, it seems like he made hay in cores more so than most Rockies, right? right? And so if you do the standard park adjustments, it might underrate some special ability he had to take advantage of the dimensions of that park or the conditions there. So it does exist to some extent. It's it's harder to pin down maybe what it is that enables players to be good in certain parks. And of course, there's a sample size issue that comes into play there but but you definitely do say i mean the old like lefty pitchers in fenway park kind of trope you know just like well you don't want that kind of player in that kind of park right and often that can be a bit overblown but there's a little bit of truth to it potentially yeah i think that that's right all right question from scott while I'm excited about larger bases as it relates to leadoffs and steals have you discussed the impact on bang bang plays at first Does the new size and orientation of the bags make it a slightly shorter path from the batter's box? If that is the case, to whom do I complain? (laughs) (laughs) I guess you got to decide whether this is something worth complaining about if it were true in the first place. And I think that is somewhat debatable, too. Yeah. I mean, it'll it'll make it a little bit, a tiny bit shorter, right? Just because it's a bigger bag. But I don't think like enough that it'll matter right it's a very small difference you're you're going from 15 inch square to 18 inch square and so we're talking about a a difference of inches here now there is a a pinstripe alley post about this by joshua demert hopefully i'm pronouncing that correctly last march who did the math on how this affects the home to first difference and Basically found, I mean, he's saying, you know, it goes from 1,065 inches to 1,062 inches. And so the time is going from 3.2870 seconds to 3.2778 seconds. If you're talking about moving 324 inches per second on average, and he's using some stat cast metrics here, and it, it would be just like the tiniest little fraction of a second 
And it might not even make a difference in like how many strides you take. I mean, it right. would be the probably the same number of strides. And so I, I guess maybe you you might actually get your foot down. You know, it's point oh 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 two seconds of difference uh, he's finding. And I don't know whether the math is uh, quite correct or not, but a very small difference. I mean, he said. We're shaving off some time on these splits, but just a little bit. It's pretty difficult to manually measure that 0.0002 seconds of difference, but that is the bang-bang play at first. 30% of all challenges from 2018 to 2020 were that exact play. Giving the runner these extra three inches means that virtually all of these uh, challenge plays will become hits again, adding about 240 hits a season to the MLB cumulative total, 430 or so challenges a year with a slightly less than 50% chance at calls being overturned. This is a marginal effect. The league-wide batting average would rise literally one point by adding in all those new hits. So that's one potential way to do that math. The other thing, though, that I don't think that this accounts for is that the first baseman can stand slightly closer to the fielder who is throwing the ball, right? So the ball has to travel a little shorter distance, too, to reach the first baseman's outstretched glove. So I don't know whether that completely equalizes things, but probably partly, right? Because the runner can get to the bag a little quicker, but the ball would get to the first baseman a little quicker, too. So maybe that kind of cancels out cancels it out yeah and the other thing is that even if certain bang bang plays became not bang bang plays then wouldn't other plays that would not have been bang bang now be bang bang right like would we have fewer bang bang plays or would the scale just slide a little so that we would have different bang bang plays but potentially just as many of them right like right the ones that you beat out by half a step before, maybe there would be a wider margin now, and so it wouldn't be bang-bang, but then you would have other plays that uh, that wouldn't have been bang-bang that now you would be closer and it would be bang-bang. So I, I don't know that the actual number of bang-bang, <laughs> I'm saying bang-bang plays a lot, but bang, bang. I don't know that the number or the rate would necessarily be different. Bang-bang. <laughs> Thank you. I don't think it'll be that different either. I don't yeah. think yeah, I would be surprised if it if it moves dramatically as a result of this. I think it'll kind of equalize around where it was. And I also like infield hits. Infield hits are, are fun. And if we're trying to incentivize contact, and this is a small, small way we can nudge things so that it might be more advantageous to put the ball in play, especially if you're a speedster and a slap hitter and you think you have a better chance to beat out a play at first, that's all to the good, I would say. Again, I don't think we would necessarily be deprived of close place. We might just have a, a different kind of closeness. Yeah. All right. Question from Linder, Patreon supporter. If a team had nothing but 1.0 war players throughout their major and minor league rosters, could they immediately trade their way into being a super team? If not, could they at least trade their one war players for enough high variance prospects that they would be a super team later on? What sort of deals would you expect to see this team making? So no high ceiling players on this team, no stars. But also, everyone is at least a little productive. It's just one more players all the way down, like throughout your minor league system, I guess. So you have a lot less of the elite talent that other organizations would have, but you also have extraordinary depth. 
So anyone who needs a warm body who can give you one war at a position, you can meet their needs and not even notice you're trading from strength there. So can you red paperclip your way to actually (laughs) having a good team and not a team that is just like worth 26 war in total, which would not be a good team. That would be like a 70 something win team probably. I mean, if you trade prospects, maybe you can. Maybe yeah. if you combine them with guys worth a win, right? Prospects, but yeah, if you just if you had a a team that had a sore lack of depth, and, yeah. And this is, I guess, assuming that everyone evaluates these players as one war players right. and, and doesn't think that they're significantly better than that or worse than that, for that matter. But if everyone knows that this is just like the one war store and you can just they have an unlimited supply of one war players, everyone needs one war players. Like every team needs that. So like even the best teams in baseball, probably the, the worst player on their roster, the 26th man, Probably not a one-war guy or or maybe if you're talking about like a great Dodgers super team or something. But almost everyone else is devoting playing time to someone who is not a one-war player. Now, some of those players, you might hope that they could be better in the future and that they'll be worth more than one more. And so you wouldn't necessarily trade them straight up for a one-war guy. But if you could target every team that needed one-more players and also like you could – get respectable like every team could get to i mean if 48 wins is your baseline roughly for if your entire team is replacement level and then you add 26 wins to that like you could be a 74 win team suddenly that's better than some actual teams are so you could uh, get out of the basement quickly if you wanted to and, and put a competitive product in any given game out there Or at the trade deadline every year, you could probably find some team that was trying to contend but had a position where it was getting replacement-level production, and they would give you something for a one-war guy and the certainty of a one-war player in the short term. That's the other thing. If you can count on them to be one-war players and you know you're getting something, I assume this means a one-war player like playing full-time, so that's a little less valuable, obviously, in a part-time role. but. Still, you could probably, if if you're not currently contending, you could get some contending team to give you real higher ceiling, ceiling prospects. Ceiling guys, yeah. Yeah, in exchange for the certainty of the short-term one war guy. And because you have an unlimited quantity of them somehow, <laughs> then maybe, like, maybe you could package enough of them together, together. to actually get some blue chippers. Maybe. I just... You're always going to be limited there by, unless you have a team that's like really keen on accumulating depth that just hangs out in the high minors, Mm -hmm. you're going to be limited because teams can only roster so many guys. So they're only going to want to- Except for the Padres. Except for the Padres, right, because they get unlimited roster spots as we've established. But, Mm -hmm. you know, assuming that they're- even if there is some divergence in that team's evaluation and yours, and they view one of the guys who you have assessed as like a one war guy as like a two win guy, mm-hmm. you know, the amount that you're going to be able to bundle in order to bring back a player who is really good is going to be limited by the, the fact that, that you only get 26 spots, right? Mm-hmm. And then you get your, you get your high, your high minor steps. So, I think that you would bump up against the ceiling 
of what you could do in relatively short order. But what if you were willing, Ben, you trade some guys and you get some guys back who, are, who you and have evaluated as as being worth more than a win. Mm-hmm. And then you you package some of those guys with a one more guy and then you get other guys. Maybe mm-hmm. that way you can do it. But I think it would be yeah. hard. Right. Teams would value having these guys for organizational depth to play their prospects against, yeah. I think, because if you had major league caliber but below average players and you could stock your whole minor league system with those guys, you could maybe accelerate the development of your hopefully higher ceiling prospects sure. by having them get regular reps against big league level talent. So there might be some value in that. but. Also, yeah, it's not like you could just trade 10 of them for a superstar, right? right? I mean, that's your kind of classic fantasy baseball trade where it's like, I'll give you this garbage guy I don't right. want and this other guy and this guy and you give me your star. Right. I've uh, been on both sides of, of trying to make that trade or someone trying to make that trade with me and often it doesn't really work because it's like, well, there's only so much value. I don't want to tie up all my roster spots in these one more guys. I need to get more production than that. So. Right. It would be tough. I, I think perhaps it could be done. It would be tough to trade your way into a super team, but I, yeah. I think you could trade your way from into a your, better team. Yeah, from your seventy-four win baseline into being a competitive team at some point. I think so. Yeah. All right. Last question from Kyle, Patreon supporter. In the long-standing, effectively wild tradition of building off-season content around Mike Trout hypotheticals, I'd like to suggest a Shohei Otani hypothetical. Mm. Let's say Otani eventually tires of his current pitcher-DH combo and announces he'd like to play the field again, but he doesn't just want to play a position, he wants to play all of them. (laughs) He announces he will only consider signing as a free agent with a team that will allow him to play all nine positions in every game. If he is not going to be allowed to play every position, he will sit that day out, but if he's going to play in a game, he has to face at least one batter at every defensive spot. My questions are as follows. Would he still be rosterable? Would a non-competitive team that might not previously have been able to get Otani actually be more inclined to bid under this scenario to get attention for the spectacle of it? Mm. What kind of strategies would you consider to maximize the benefits and minimize the potential pitfalls of playing every way Otani? (sighs) First thing I would say is that he would be playable at all those positions if he set his mind to it. Like, Wow. Do you have any any doubt that Shohei Otani, if he trained to be name a position here, that he could do it? I mean, catcher might be a stretch. Yeah, I was just about to say. (laughs) He doesn't have catching experience. Uh, He's a little bit bigger than the typical catcher. And (laughs) and, and that would be dangerous and everything. So I I don't necessarily want him to do that. I mean, look, Joe Maurer, 6'5", 225, right? Shohei Otani listed 6'4", 210. Like, it can happen. But without real catching experience as a pro, uh, that would be worrisome. But uh, he has the athleticism to do whatever the heck he wants on a baseball field, as far as I'm concerned. Like, he has actual outfield experience, and, and he was a perfectly fine outfielder. And he stopped doing it really for rest purposes and fatigue purposes. But does anyone doubt that he could be a good outfielder if he played regularly? I don't. Now, infield is a bit of a different different story. But I mean, just uh, look at the guy. Look at him field his position as a pitcher. Like he's a natural. I, I don't have any concerns about like whether he would be playable. 
if he actually committed himself to playing that position. Now, it's a little bit different, obviously, if he's playing every position at the same time, because there is uh, an adjustment, as Russell Carlton has found, if you're switching positions, like even if you're playing the same position every day and you switch positions to a different position you're playing every day, there's still, I think he's found like a third of a season or something it takes for you to actually get your bearings there. So to do the stunt that some players have done where they play every position in the same game, but to do that in every game, that would take a toll even on Otani. So the fatigue factor would be the big thing. And if he has to pitch in every game, that's going to be an issue too, just workload wise. Like he would no longer be a starting pitcher, right? He'd have to just relieve and you'd have to use him very sparingly. I mean, you'd have to use him gosh even if you used him an inning every game might be kind of equivalent to his starting schedule yeah in terms of innings pitched but not in terms of recovery time and and days off you wouldn't have a day off unless it was a scheduled day off for the team so i don't know how to figure exactly the strain of let's say throwing six or seven innings and then getting to rest for several days or rest your arm at least versus throwing an inning a day or less than an inning in a day but never having an off day on a day your team was playing like that would be tough as you said like teams have load managed relievers now where even if you're an inning at a time guy they are much more hesitant to pitch you on back-to-back days or at least back-to-back-to-back right so that would be tough i doubt that even he would have the stamina to do this i think he has the physical ability but i think even he would wear down fairly quickly and, and would probably get hurt yeah i think that it would probably exceed there there are two issues there's his ability to do it and while i also have great faith in otani i don't mean to there's no besmirching happening here ben Mm -hmm. so you just relax okay yeah i think that the the toll that this would take on his body would deteriorate his play in a noticeable way and in a way that that certainly curtailed his value and then there's the the piece of it that is like having to accommodate such a strange schedule and you know teams can can do a six man rotation right but this i think probably pushes uh, and and can accommodate a two way player as we have seen mm-hmm. but i think that this would be burdensome to the point of not being workable and yeah. that would that would be fine right mm-hmm. it would be fine to say this is this is workable it'd be okay <laughs> you know we'd survive that well he you know has never struck me as an unreasonable person <laughs> no and so i'm sure he would say yeah that's a lot isn't it right and then and then it wouldn't happen in a sense, it's unreasonable to to even think that you could be a two-way player in the major leagues or NPB for that matter, but it is reasonable if you're Shohei Otani and you actually have the well, talent to be able to do that. Sure, This yes. is different. This is every way Otani. Right. So. Granted, I, gr- I grant that premise, but yes, I think it is a different level that would <laughs> you know just in- inspire people to go like, Hey, it's it's okay. Just <laughs> yeah. chill, you know? <laughs> yeah. If you were to do it, if it were the only way that you could sign Otani, I think a team would still do it. Just uh, Otani's talent is so tantalizing. I mean, he's the best player in baseball, probably. So if you can get the best player in baseball and he insists on playing every position and he has the athleticism of Shohei Otani... 
this is not like if if Mike Trout insisted on doing this, well, you wouldn't want Mike Trout pitching, right? Whereas when Otani's pitching, he's one of the best pitchers in baseball. So I, I think he could hold his own, and I think that would make him rosterable. It would be very complex and it might be causing clubhouse issues and it would be a lot of work for the manager to figure it all out and keep track of okay has he played every position now you'd have to have like next to your lineup card you'd you'd have to just have some sort of like list of positions and check them off as he got there right and it probably would be a draw as long as he stayed healthy it would be a spectacle it would sell some tickets even if he could handle all those positions though the players he displaced might not be able to so you'd have other players playing out of position and maybe there'd be a compounding penalty and i think you could try to minimize the strain like i don't know let's say you have him pitch the first inning in one game and then maybe you have him pitch the ninth the next game to just the maximum rest and number of hours between outings and then you could have him dh for most of the game still probably and then you could just cycle him around as quickly as possible right so he can knock out all three outfield positions in one inning right or or even faster than an inning if he only has to be out there for one batter right now as a pitcher he may have to be out there for more than one batter because of the the rules about changing pitchers unless it's uh, the last out of the inning or something so you could calculate that but but you know you can just move him around batter by batter so he's in left for this batter and then he's in center for this batter and then he's in right for the next batter and maybe the inning is over if it's not then you know like you could knock out every position in theory in two innings maybe two to three innings right and so he could actually still dh for most of the game and thus you can get him the maximum amount of rest and the minimum amount of time at every other position so I, I think that would probably be the way to do it, right? And you could also, if you think he is not as strong as your regular option at any particular position, then you could do some some math, right? And, and try to figure out when would be the least costly time to deploy him at each position. So yeah. you can look at the spray charts and the pitcher and all of that and try to figure out, okay, this batter is uh, less likely to hit the ball to right field right now. So we'll move Otani out. This is this is the matchup we want for Otani in right field, right? So I think you could still have him DH for like six innings or something. And, and then you could just get it all done, right? And either at the beginning and then have him rest or, or at the end and have him rest at the start so i think it it could be doable it's a terrible idea but it could be done it yeah but like i (laughs) right but so here's the thing though about here here's one thing about otani that i think Mm -hmm. uh, we have established which is that like he he knows he can do the two-way thing and the reason he is committed to doing it is because doing it at the level he has like is it benefits his team yes and helps them to win Mm -hmm. and i think that that is in addition to proving that he can do it and can do it as well as he has is is a big part of the appeal for him is that he would like to win and so i find it hard to believe that he would adopt a convoluted structure that would make things challenging Mm -hmm. for the team to win because he seems to want to win and and you know maybe he could be like the best or at least just a, a playable catcher maybe he could but mm-hmm. I think that he does these two things really well, and we know that. And so he would say, hey, let's keep doing that, though. Mm-hmm. Yep, you know? I think so. Yeah. yeah. So. All right. Let me wrap up with Stat Blast here. It's just- They'll take a deed 
So I got a few things to touch on here. First, Darren O'Day has uh, announced his retirement, a staple of uh, bullpens around baseball. He has called it a career, and quite a career it was. Just uh, narratively speaking, his his farewell tweet starts out as a lightly recruited high school player to a college walk-on to an undrafted free agent to a non-prospect entering pro ball. I'm extremely proud of playing with the best players in the world for so long. Finally, after 17 seasons in professional baseball, it is time to go home. And every athlete, they like to say, nobody believed in me, you know, and, and nobody thought I was going to be this great. Eh, with Darren O'Day, I think it's a pretty accurate label, right? Yeah. It's uh, impressive that he came from those humble baseball beginnings to last as long as he did and not just pitch as long as he did, 15 major league seasons, but also to be as good as he was, 2.59 ERA. He has a 167 career ERA+. Plus. And this is just a very simplistic, uh, just ran a stat head query here for highest ERA plus in a career with at least 600 innings pitched. He had only 609 career in the regular season. It goes Mariano Rivera, Billy Wagner, Craig Kimbrell, Jonathan Papelbon, and Darren O'Day. He's fifth all time in terms of ERA plus in the AL and NL minimum 600 innings pitched. And the save totals for those five guys... Starting with Rivera and Wagner, Kimbrell, Papelbon, O'Day, 652, 422, 394, 368, 21. <laughs> and wow. he's actually uh, tied with a 167 ERA plus with Aroldis Chapman, who himself has 315 saves. So one of those things, not like the others. So really just a, a kind of a cool, extremely effective on an inning printing basis setup man. I do just want to mention, though, that fifth on the list, if we include not just AL and NL, but also the Negro Leagues, which you can do on StatHead, is Dave Brown, who would rank between Papelbon and O'Day with a 169 career ERA+. And he was a, a Negro Leagues player, 1920 to 1925, short career, and actually mostly a starter, but very effective And I will tell you why he had a short career. So reading from his baseball reference bullpen page, he started 1925 with a win despite seven walks and seven hits. He allowed one run while striking out eight. He then ended his career by killing a man in a barroom fight. Fellow Negro Leagues players Frank Wickware and Oliver Marcel were present at the scene. He then fled law enforcement afterward. Living on the run, he played under the name Lefty Wilson reportedly for an otherwise white team in Minnesota in 1927 in Sioux City, Iowa in 1929 and in Little Falls, Minnesota in 1930. He was apparently arrested in Greensboro, North Carolina, and the FBI found that his fingerprints matched up. A different account has it that the police in Greensboro remembered his wanted poster and contacted the NYPD. Despite this, New York decided not to extradite and charge him. Brown is rumored to have died in Denver. While his career was bookended by violent acts of crime, in the beginning of his career, he was involved in a highway robbery. 
I don't know whether he was doing the robbing or being robbed, but yeah, cutting short a magnificent pro career, his teammates described him as gentle, kind, and jolly. (laughs) So there's Dave Brown. And uh, as the baseball reference bullpen page noted, he might have uh, trouble with Cooperstown's character clause. Given the way uh, his career ended there, also didn't play long enough to meet Hall of Fame standards, but he was on the preliminary ballot for the 2006 special committee on the Negro Leagues election. So quite a player while he was around. That's Dave Brown for you. Now, the actual step loss I want to give you here, I just happened to see that O'Day was retiring before we started recording, but Jeffrey Springs is uh, getting extended by the Tampa Bay Rays. The Rays are on a little extension spree, seemingly. Not just Jeffrey Springs, but also Pete Fairbanks and Yandy Diaz, it looks like. It's extension season, right? We saw the the Mets with Jeff McNeil and the Braves extending their manager, Brian Snitker. We'll get more and more extensions as opening day approaches. But I was intrigued by Jeffrey Springs. Hard for me to separate in my mind uh, his performance from the fact that he was one of the Rays who opted out of Pride Night, right? But he did have a very solid season yeah. on the field in 2022. Totally. And the interesting thing about Jeffrey Springs is that he became a starter for the first time in the majors in 2022, his age 29 season, and it went remarkably well. So he debuted with the Rangers in 2018. He was with them for a couple seasons and then with the Red Sox and then with the Rays for the past couple seasons. And he had been exclusively a reliever aside from two opener starts in 2018 with Texas. He was just in the bullpen every year and wasn't even always effective there. He had started some in college and in the minors, but not in the majors. And this has been a longstanding interest of mine. I wrote back in 2010 for Baseball Prospectus. RJ Anderson still makes fun of me because I was so flabbergasted that the Astros had decided to use Wesley Wright as a starter, even though he had only been a reliever to that point. But Wesley Wright, when he started four games, he was only in his third season and he was 25. Never started again after that year. But the spring situation is even more unusual. And I'm always intrigued by people who do the reverse conversion, right? Because it's usually you become a reliever when you wash out as a starter. And typically, pitchers pitch better in the bullpen than they do in the rotation. If it's the same guy at the same time, Tom Tango has what he calls the rule of 17, which is basically that like all your rate stats improve by like 17% is kind of the average boost that you get from going to the bullpen as a starter. So it is unusual for someone who is uh, in his fifth major league season and nearing 30 and already is 30 at this point. Darren O'Day, by the way, is 40, but Jeffrey Spinks is is 30 now, so unusual to make that kind of conversion. And so I just wanted to know what the precedents were for that kind of established reliever being made a starter after really being solidified in a relief role. So I went to frequent Stat Blast consultant Ryan Nelson, RSNelson23 on Twitter, and I asked him to come up with a list of pitchers who had made a similar career shift to Springs. So the criteria were, and I think he he started with World War II, so this is post-World War II players, which would probably get most of the qualifiers anyway because there weren't that many regular relievers prior to that. So if we look for players who had at least three-plus seasons to start their career as relievers, and, and over those three-plus seasons, 
they pitched at least 95% of their games in relief. So those are the the criteria. At least three plus seasons to start the career with cumulatively at least 95% of those games coming in relief, which we use that cutoff to account for Springs' uh, opener starts. If you do that, and then you look for guys who had, following those reliever seasons, a season where he started at least 75% of his games, which was the case for Springs in 2022. And we looked for players who satisfied those criteria. Since World War II, there are only 21 of them. Jeffrey Springs is the 21st to make that kind of change. So it is uh, quite unusual. Hoyt Wilhelm was the first to do it. So he debuted in 1952, and he had seven reliever seasons until his first season as a starter in 1959. And then Bob McClure and Steve Bedrosian, Ken Howell, Mike Jeffcoat, Craig Lefferts. Craig Lefferts actually went nine seasons before his first starter season. Kenny Rogers, Woody Williams, Darren Dreifert, Paul Bird, Ron Valone, Danny Graves— Braden Looper, who had a very interesting career, Justin Dukesher, C.J. Wilson, Jeff Samarja, Neftali Feliz, Esmerling Vasquez, and J.C. Ramirez, and Josh Lindblom, actually, and then Jeffrey Springs. So Springs was the first to do it since Lindblom coming back from overseas, I suppose, in 2020, and it's quite rare. And the other thing that makes Springs' conversion rare is that it was successful. He actually he got better pitching primarily as a starter than he had pitching exclusively as a reliever. So he had a 2.46 ERA in 2022 while making 25 starts in 33 games. So we limited that initial sample of 21 to guys who had a better ERA in their first season as a starter than they did in their career to date prior to that point. And that limits it to only 10 guys. Okay. So we're we're whittling the sample down even more here. And that limits us to Wilhelm, Ken Howell, Darren Dreifert, Paul Bird, Ron Valone, Justin Dukesher, CJ Wilson, Jeff Samarja, and JC Ramirez. And then Springs. I guess that's actually not a bad rate. That's like uh, almost half of the guys who did make these unusual conversions had a better ERA in their first year as a starter than they had as a reliever prior to that point. So I suppose that means or suggests that teams are picking the right people when they anoint someone to make this odd conversion. But here's the really extraordinary thing about Springs. This was his best ERA in any year yet. So not just better than his uh, career ERA to date prior to the conversion season, but also his ERA in 2022 was his best single season ERA of his career. And that has been accomplished by only one player prior to this, J.C. Ramirez. So (laughs) J.C. Ramirez, he started in 2013 or he began his career in 2013, but he did not start in 2013. He transitioned to starting in 2017 so that was his uh, fourth season and it went well so 2013 you know he had a a 7.5 era and then 2015 he had a 5.3 era and i should say i think uh, ryan tossed out seasons with uh, 15 and fewer innings so there was some innings limit here that was also applied 
And so Ramirez, you know, 7.56 ERA with uh, Seattle. I guess that was in a partial season. 2016, he had a 4.35 ERA. And then 2017, he starts with the Angels, 24 out of 27 games, and he had a 4.15 ERA that you're above average, better than average ERA plus. So it went okay. And that's really the only post-World War II, at least, precedent for a pitcher making the Jeffrey Springs conversion and having it go as well as it did relative to his previous career. And the Rays will hope that the rest of Springs' career will not be like J.C. Ramirez's because 2018, he started two games and two appearances and had a 9.45 ERA. And then the following year, he was back in the bullpen for five games and then he was done. I guess, you know, he got hurt and uh, it it did not presage a, a long and successful career as a starter, but at least for one year it worked. And I guess he was uh, still pitching in AAA in 2022 and in the Venezuelan Winter League. So he's still bouncing around yeah. out there. <laughs> but But Springs really... An outlier, almost unprecedented to uh, have someone who fits quite these qualifications. So uh, it's a bold move, and and it worked out for him. Well, to reference a name that you said maybe 20 minutes ago, because, Mm -hmm. Ben, you have uh, said a lot of words, Mm -hmm. I think the important thing for all involved is to know when to hold him. I want to fold them. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I was like, oh, maybe that'll be the last set of names. And then there were like five more sets. And I was like, I'm doing the reference anyway. <laughs> yeah, it worked. So yeah, four-year contract extension, $31 million over the course of the deal with the uh, club options and other incentives and such. And and if you're wondering, well, how did they decide that Jeffrey Spings would be a candidate yeah. for this unusual conversion? Well, I asked someone with the Rays. Uh, I won't say who, you know. I, I could uh, chat with uh, anyone who works for the Rays, really. I don't know who might come to mind for uh, podcast listeners, uh, someone who is currently employed by the Rays. But, you know, I'm not specifying who it is necessarily. But they had a bunch of guys hurt, which is uh, basically why they started doing the opener was that they were just shorthanded. Right. So Shane Baz was hurt and Patino was hurt and Yarborough was hurt and Mazo was hurt. So they had like four starters, maybe at most, like they had uh, Shane McClanahan and they had Kluber and they had Josh Fleming and they had Drew Rasmussen and they were like, we need someone else here. And no one wanted to trade at that point in the year. And some of the coaches thought maybe Springs, maybe we could stretch Springs out. And they were intrigued by that possibility. And also Springs himself expressed enthusiasm unprompted for starting. So that always helps when the player is on board. So it seemed to make some sense. And and the coaches were intrigued by him as a starting candidate because he had three pitches and he threw strikes and he had been pretty successful as a reliever with the Rays. And he has a controlled delivery, nothing too herky-jerky or max effort. So it, in retrospect, seems like, hey, yeah, maybe he he could have done this. Uh, he had no serious arm injuries in the past. So for all those reasons, he kind of fit the criteria and they tried it and it worked and it worked for him and he got himself an extension. So that's how that happened. But yep. very, very rare. And lastly, I have one that is inspired by the 2003 sci-fi classic, The Core, which will turn 20 in March. Now, The Core has been back in the news to some extent because the real-life Earth's core has stopped rotating. Yeah. Scientists have determined that the core 
has stopped or is stopping and is maybe reversing direction, which is basically the plot of the 2003 sci-fi classic, The Core, right? The the Earth's core is not spinning anymore or is stopping, and this is going to be disastrous, and the Earth's electromagnetic field is going to be destroyed, and so they have to go and like nuke the core <laughs> to get it started again. It's, uh, it's kind of a fun movie if you watch it in the right spirit without uh, too many scruples and, you know, being a stickler for sci-fi accuracy or scientific accuracy. But here's the thing. We got an email from listener Andy in Portland. Andy said, in light of the news that the Earth's core may be slowing and reversing, I decided to watch the 2003 classic, The Core. The film starts with a space shuttle flying over Dodger Stadium during opening day with Sean Green in the box and Mike Hampton pitching. Two questions from Andy. One, does this make it a baseball movie? Two, is this the most 2003 at bat imaginable? (laughs) The answer to question one is absolutely it makes it a baseball movie by the effectively wild definition of baseball movie. This is it's like a 20 second scene. You know, the the space shuttle, it's like on reentry and it's uh, burning up and they've got to reroute over Los Angeles. And I think Randall Monroe of XKCD fame actually interrogated whether the space shuttle part of this is, is accurate, whether the space shuttle could do this and land like this and the answer is no probably not which is not particularly surprising that's the answer to every question about the core probably but there's this 20 second scene where the space shuttle with not very impressive special effects flies over dodger stadium and mike hampton is pitching to sean green and sean green like looks up because there's a sonic boom as the space shuttle passes overhead this is on youtube so i will link to it on the show page Guidance is bad. You are now one, two, nine miles off course. Roger Houston, we sort of noticed. Um, is that Los Angeles? That is confirmed. We are one five thousand feet. We got maybe two minutes of glide time makes left. Makes sense. The guidance, the, the beacons, are all wrong. We are heading straight for downtown. I'm not gonna crash in Los Angeles. You're gonna hit downtown LA at three hundred knots. Bob, you know LA because I have an idea. Houston, those buildings are getting mighty big. Can you clear a freeway? Okay. Okay. Come on. Come on. It's rush hour, command, and it's bumper bumper. Sir, I have an alternate. If we turn to heading 175. That's Houston's call. Houston? Computers are still prodding. running out of time here i happened to on a whim look up what mike hampton versus sean green what their actual (laughs) line against each other was and it turned out that it's pretty extraordinary sean green owned mike hampton he went 18 for 29 against mike hampton i don't know whether that's 18 dash 29 or 18 hyphen 29 or 18 slash 29, but 18 for 29 with five homers. So that is a 621, 647, 1207 slash line in 34 plate appearances. Not an insubstantial amount of of plate appearances. It's easily the highest OPS Sean Green had against any pitcher he faced 15 plus times and easily the highest OPS of any hitter who faced Mike Hampton 15 plus times. 
And prior to 2003, when the movie came out, he was 13 for 19 against Mike Hampton through that point. There were already articles being written about it. I I found a, a Los Angeles Times article from April of 2002 headline Hampton isn't much of an ace to green and it's uh, about just how Sean Green owned Mike Hampton already at that point so I have to wonder like Sean Green good player underrated you know he was a top 10 position player by war from 1999 to 2002 and Mike Hampton was already not at his best by the the latter part of that period but this is extreme extreme ownership and so I have to wonder if this was a complete coincidence that it happened to be Hampton versus Green in this matchup, like one of the shots looks like it it could be actual game footage, potentially. Others, maybe not. So I have attempted to, to reach out. I, I have contacted both Sean Green and Mike Hampton and also the two screenwriters of the core. And strangely, I have not heard back from any of them yet. <laughs> Very, very odd. You would think that I would receive immediate responses about how this scene happened and whether it was a coincidence that it happened to be Hampton versus Green. I have not oddly heard back yet from any of them. But if I do, I will certainly update you and everyone else. But but odd, right? Weird coincidence. This is extreme, extreme ownership. And so I had to know whether this was uh, historic, whether that level of of ownership of one batter versus one pitcher is actually anomalous or or unprecedented. And so for this, I I went to semi-regular stat blast consultant Kenny Jacklin of Baseball Reference, who is also on Twitter at his name, Kenny Jacklin, J-A-C-K-E-L-E-N. And he was able to give me a list of the highest OPSs in batter-pitcher matchups of Mm. 30-plus plate appearances. So it turns out that the highest OPS any hitter has had against any pitcher on record in 30 or more plate appearances is Albert Pujols versus Odalis Perez, right, which I I think some people have pointed out. And Pujols, 609, 719, 1391, that's a 2110 OPS against Perez in 32 plate appearances with five homers. Then you have Ryan Howard against Chris Volstad, 2,075 OPS. Ralph Kiner versus Steve Ridzik, and this one was 2025 OPS. Jack Fournier versus Tony Kaufman, 2011 OPS. Jim Tomey versus Rick Reed, 1981. Barry Bonds versus Jose Lima, 1942. Henry Aaron versus Don Gullett, 1929. Paul Goldschmidt versus Tim Lincecum, 1916. Jim Tomey again versus Bobby Witt, 1865. Daryl Porter versus Mike Kruko, 1859. Willie McCovey versus Bob Moose, 1855. And at number 12, Sean Green versus Mike Hampton with that 1854 OPS. Wow. So all of these are uh, in 30-something plate appearances except Willie McCovey versus Bob Moose, which was in 42 plate appearances. So this is absolutely one of the most extreme batter versus pitcher OPSs of all time. And and this is not era adjusted. So obviously, like, you know, it's a high, what are we saying? A high offense era, scoring environment, run scoring environment. Don't want to offend anyone with my offensive environment. <laughs> <laughs> but but it is uh, it is one of the most extreme cases ever. And it happens to be preserved for posterity in the 2003 sci-fi classic, The Core. How are 
all of these people in this movie? That remains the the yeah. wildest part, which I think that if we did talk about this, which it feels like a thing we would have talked about because I have mm-hmm. like 14 references and half of them are from <laughs> the David Lynch Dune, but like, mm-hmm. like, how do you get all of these folks and then you have really a, just a really bad a, a quite bad movie, <laughs> yeah. Ben. Like, yeah. as I recall, not a a winner. Uh, a movie I've seen more than once. Acclaimed. No, Mm-mm. but but not a. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of surprising that Bruce Greenwood hasn't had a a better career. You know, yeah, I mean, he's right. had a good career. He's like had a stable career. I doubt lately that Bruce Greenwood has been like, oh, I'm gonna. Pay, how am I paying these bills? Because he's got that Star Trek money. But like, mm-hmm. you know, how yeah. did he not have a I was going to say, yeah, career. maybe more popular appeal than than critical appeal, but it's got 39% on the tomato meter, the, the critic rating at Rotten Tomatoes, and 34% audience score. Yeah, 34% audience score. So I no, can't, this is, I'm shocked that it has yeah. even that. There's I, There are people melting at, at one point, right? And then the birds <laughs> die. Those things happen out of sequence, uh, how I just described them. But. Right. The other thing I tested Kenny on was at, at one point, there was a span of 11 consecutive plate appearances where Green reached base against Hampton. Mm. So his third plate appearance on May 30th, 2001, through his first plate appearance on April 17th, 2002, and this was a span of of five different games. Here's how it went, green against Hampton. Double, double, home run, home run, single, walk, walk, single, intentional walk, don't Mm. blame him, single, single. Before finally he he struck Green out swinging. So 11 straight plate appearances. I was wondering how weird that was. It turns out from the data that Baseball Reference has, and of course we're missing some play-by-play data for early eras that might make it tough to answer this comprehensively, but the longest on-base streak that Kenny could find one batter versus one pitcher is Pinky Higgins... I'm not a real person. <laughs> Love it already. Picky Higgins reached base in 17 straight plate appearances against Roxy Lawson. Refuse to <laughs> believe that either of those are real people. Yeah, no, this is this is not science fiction, unlike the core. That actually happened. So uh, Pinky Higgins, starting, I guess, on May 3rd, 1938, he went walk, 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 single, 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 mm. home run, walk, Single, double, single, 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 walk, single against (laughs) Roxy Lawson. And then finally, September 4th, 1939, there was a a batted ball of some sort that led to an out. So, wow. I mean, that's, you know, he must have felt like he was the curse of Pinky here. But that's, that's tough. So 17 seems to be the longest on record. And uh, he found some other long ones, like the extremely real names of Furpo Marbury versus Goose Goslin. They had a a 14-plate appearance streak. Joe Nuxall versus Don Hoke, 15. Gavin Floyd versus Joe Maurer, 15. Mm. Vic Sorrell versus Babe Ruth, 14. Walt Masterson versus Ted Williams, 15. So, yeah, there have been there's been only one 17-plate appearance streak. There have been no 16-plate appearance streaks. Three fifteens, two fourteens, eight thirteens, thirteen twelves, and then thirty-six eleven plate appearance streaks like Green and Hampton, the most recent being 
Adam Eaton versus Zach Wheeler, which ended on April 7th, 2019. So thanks so much to Andy in Portland for uh, sending me on this deep dive about the 2003 sci-fi classic, The Core. And I'll remind everyone that the fact that the Earth's core is really perhaps no longer spinning or is reversing in direction, not disastrous. In Mm. fact, this seems to happen periodically, and it's okay. Do you mean to say that that movie was not scientifically accurate? I do mean to say that. So we do not have to nuke the core. We don't have to do anything. It will fix itself, and it's fine. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, I'm just, I wish someone had told Aaron Eckhart sooner, (laughs) Mm -hmm. because all those people didn't have to die down there, you know? Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the most Babe Ruth owned any pitcher was Babe Ruth versus Bob Hasty, 1785 mm. OPS, and that's 17th on the list. So again, Sean Green dominated Mike Hampton more than Babe Ruth dominated any one pitcher he faced 30 plus times, at least on a, a rate basis. So truly historic. And I'm glad that you can witness that whenever you watch the core, if you are so inclined. <laughs> Though in the core, we see only one pitch and we don't actually see where the ball goes. We see the swing and then Green gets distracted. And the way it's shot, I think the implication is that Green swung through the pitch. And that's perfectly in keeping with the core's accuracy as a whole. Because Sean Green failing to hit a pitch from Mike Hampton is about as far-fetched as the consequences of the core stopping. All right, to conclude with the Pass Blast episode 1962... And this comes from that year and also from new Pass Blast consultant David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. He writes, Robinson lauded in East-West finale. It had been 15 years since Jackie Robinson shattered professional baseball's color barrier when he was honored at what would be the final Negro League's East-West All-Star game. The game was held on August 26, 1962, at Kansas City's Municipal Stadium. Several former Kansas City Monarchs were recognized during the game, including Satchel Page. None, however, received more praise than Robinson. As reported by the Chicago Defender, Robinson received a key to the city, two plaques, and a Chamber of Commerce Certificate of Appreciation from Kansas City, Missouri. Monarch center fielder Willie Hardwick powered the West team to victory with a three-run homer in the second inning. His Monarch's teammate Sherman Cottingham started the game for the West and was credited with the win. The Negro American League disbanded in 1962, making this contest the Negro League's final All-Star game. So that's the the bittersweet part of the integration of the AL and NL is that it spelled the end for the Negro Leagues uh, eventually. And they hung on in in some form for a while. But 1962 was uh, when they finally gave up the ghost and, and had to pack it in. And we can pack it in, too. All right. By the way, speaking of opting out of Pride Night, we mused on a recent episode about Jeff Kent's character and things that could keep him out of the hall based on the character clause. We noted that there didn't seem to be many publicly known transgressions as there have been for some other candidates. A couple people directed me to one thing I either hadn't known or had forgotten about Jeff Kent, which is that back in 2008, he gave $15,000 to backers of California's Proposition 8 to ban same-sex marriage, which passed and was later overturned. Not 
not surprising, perhaps, that those would be his politics, given that he famously said when he was on Survivor that the million dollars he might win on the game would be 600 grand by the time Obama takes it. You know what pisses me off? Because I think I've made about $60 million playing baseball, and I want this freaking million dollars in this game. And it's not even a million bucks. It's 600 grand by the time Obama takes it. I'm a Game 7 World Series loser. You know, I've played in the biggest games in the world and the worst games in the world, but this just sucks. According to Baseball Reference, he actually made more like $86 million playing baseball, but I guess after a certain number of millions, maybe you lose track. Or maybe $60 million was what he had left after Bill Clinton and George Bush took it. Anyway, this does not make me think well of Jeff Kent. Then again, even Barack Obama himself did not support same-sex marriage yet in 2008, and I shudder to think of how many plaques would be left in the Hall of Fame if supporting same-sex marriage were a criterion for induction. Definitely doesn't make me root for him, but boy, if you support same-sex marriage and you don't want to think ill of baseball players, then we might be better off with a don't ask, don't tell policy when it comes to baseball players' politics, because those with a more liberal bent would probably not find their beliefs mirrored to a great degree in major league clubhouses. It's not a blanket statement, just saying, on the whole, a lot of players have probably leaned more toward the Kent side of the spectrum than the, let's say, Sean Doolittle, Mark Canna side of the spectrum. You will probably not be surprised to learn that Frank Schubert, who managed the Yes on 8 campaign in California, and similar campaigns in other states against gay marriage told the LA Times in 2008 that he did support Jeff Kent's candidacy for the Hall of Fame. Schubert said he has had a stellar career and will no doubt one day be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. I wish the Giants had kept Kent and traded bonds. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Jack Van Ash, Alex Levy, Chris Hilton, Ben Tarhan, and Ryan Quans. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, whose ranks are growing. You can help propel us toward 1,000 members. We're almost there, and you'll be glad to be a part of a growing, thriving, welcoming community. You also get access to monthly bonus pods hosted by yours truly and Meg. You can get discounts on merch and ad-free Fangrass memberships and access to playoff live streams and more. Patreon.com slash wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can contact me and Meg via the Patreon site. If not, you can contact us via email. Send us your questions, comments, suggestions via podcast at Fangrass.com. You can also join our Facebook group at Facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can browse the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with another episode a little later this week. Talk to you then. 